Hello and welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. I'm your host, and I have been for 50 episodes now, Liam Edwards. And thank you for indeed joining me to once again cast off another valued games industry member to a deserted island for the 50th time. Yes, today, today's episode is the 50th episode of the show. And just before we start today, I wanted to quickly thank everyone who since January of last year, when the show started, has listened, downloaded, shared, and generally supported the show. It means so much to me, and I never expected to get past episode one, let alone 50 episodes later. So thank you so much for your support, and I hope you will continue to enjoy the show for 50 more and beyond. In actual fact, the show is hopefully going to be undergoing some changes soon, surrounding more community-like aspects, uh, and also completely relaunching the the Patreon too. Uh, So keep an eye out on that for uh, the future. You can find stuff related to the show on Twitter, at Final Games Show. Uh, But the first change you might have noticed for those keen listeners is that this episode marks the first in which the show has its own intro song. The wonderful Chipchone intro you heard just a few seconds ago, and probably under my voice right now, was created by a good friend of mine and listener of the show, Craig, who is a Chiptune artist under the name of Windmills at Dawn. You should go check out his EP on Bandcamp and support that, because he made me such an amazing intro. I hope you enjoy it, and uh, so uh, big thanks to him for doing that. Um, But, housekeeping aside now, this week marking the 50th episode, we have a very special guest, someone I've wanted to have on the show ever since the very early uh, inception, uh, when I was making the original list for guests who I wanted on the show, and uh, usually I'm able to list most of the work in which my guest has been involved in, no matter how impressive a resume is. It It usually can always be condensed. I will admit this week I had a great deal of difficulty condensing down the amazing work that my guest today has been involved in over the past 20 years. Starting out in the games industry as a Nintendo games counselor when he was just 16, my guest realized he had a unique talent for art. After studying, he immediately got a job working for a developer called Lobotomy Software. After a few years of working and his Sega fanboyness being noticed, my guest was introduced to the one and only Tetsuya Mizuguchi, who was forming a division under Sega called United Games Artists. My guest was asked to join the studio as an artist and move all the way to Japan, which personally I know is quite a daunting and scary thing. I can't even imagine being one of the only people at Sega who was not Japanese at the time. Under this studio, alongside Mizuguchi-san, my guest worked on titles such as Space Channel 5 and the Synthstasia masterpiece that's featured on this show a few times before, Rez. After working for Sega Japan for a few years, my guest then shifted over to EA Los Angeles. But it wasn't until 2009 until he made his biggest move yet. Alongside a few other developers, he created his own studio, originally named Haunted Temple Studios, or as you might know them today, the Kyoto-based studio 17-bit. In 2013, 17-Bit released their debut title, the turn-based tactics game Skulls of the Shogun, which received rave reviews from players and critics alike. Most recently though, the studio released their latest title in late 2015, the roguelike space game Galaxy, which also received incredible reviews. I'm very happy and excited to say that my guest for the 50th episode of the show, and also a guest who is finally on my time zone for once, the excellent Mr. Jake Kasdahl. Hello, Jake. (laughs) Well, that's quite an intro. Thank you. (laughs) My pleasure. How are you doing today, sir? Good, good. It was a good day. Very good day. I we were speaking earlier today. Today was your son's first year graduation. Uh, so congratulations to him on that. <laughs> yeah, it was a fun night. We watched some uh, Planet Earth two to celebrate and had a big dinner. And uh, yeah, it was a good night. Excellent. So 
Jake, uh, you have 20 years plus of games industry back catalog now in your pocket, and you're also still working hard to this day, creating your own games. Um, it must be pretty amazing to look back and think about all the things that you've been involved in. Um, but how did you get started? In gaming in general or in the industry? Um, I guess, did one lead to another? Was like when you were a kid playing games, was this like, was it one of those defining moments that a lot of people have where it's like, this is what I want to do? You know, I don't think it happened um, right away. I didn't really realize that, you know, people made games. I thought they came from heaven or something. I don't know, you know, it was such an abstract concept when you're younger, um, especially back then. It was all pre-internet and, you know, before anybody understood anything. Uh, but I did <laughs> love video games. I played games a lot. Um, you know, starting off when I was really young, my, my father had a pizza parlor. And there was always a game center in the back. And so a lot of nights when he would get busy, um, my mom would have to come in and work. And he would just give me a big styrofoam cup full of quarters. And I would go play those big black, you know, arcade machines in the in the like late 70s, early 80s. And, I mean, they always just absolutely caught my attention. I mean, my brother wasn't really ever into it. But I was just like endless, you know, Centipede and Asteroids and Donkey Kong and Mario Brothers and Ikari Warriors and, uh, you know, Tempest and Zaxxon. I mean, that stuff all just really had a big uh, kind of impression on me. And I've, I've always loved video games. Yeah. Uh, when I turned 16, I was thinking about getting a part-time job in, in high school. And uh, one of my best friends, Theron Benson, I found that his sister had just taken a job there working in community service at Nintendo. Not community service, uh, customer service. Where when people have their machine, you know, not working or whatever, they would call okay, this, yeah. this hotline. And I was like, wow, what else do they do? And so we looked into it and it turned out they had this, you know, the game counselor thing, which we had actually called a couple times. And I kind of put two and two together that that was all based, you know, right next to my hometown. So before I even got a driver's license, as soon as I turned 16, because you had to be 16 to get a job there, I, I went over there and applied and got a job and, you know, was like working in the industry alongside, you know, all kinds of people that are still doing great stuff today. And uh, that was 1989. So it's been it's been quite a ride. Wow, that's uh, and, amazing. Yeah, as soon as I was as soon as I was in, I was like, this this is me. This is my industry. This is what I want to do. This is you know, I want to be around this stuff. I want to be around these people. Uh, and that never that never stopped. So I mean, I, I, it took me a while to get into actual production. I mean, it was years later after I graduated from college that I moved into an actual game studio in production. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time before that doing customer service and just sort of playing lots of games and going to the parties and going to the trade shows and stuff like that. So uh, it was a long a long intro, but uh, yeah, no regrets. I've I've had a good, really fun career. So you're an artist by trade. Um, and you studied art, and that's how you sort of got into the industry. Um, when you were working back at Nintendo, though, you saw other ways to get into it. Were you not tempted to be like a programmer or um, no? I'm, some, I'm something not like anywhere. That? I'm nowhere near smart enough to be an engineer. I, I never had any interest in stuff like that. Um, yeah, I, I really, I, I was into art and drawing. My mom's an artist, and I've always, I've always been good at art, and I really enjoyed it. Um, it wasn't until years later, though, that I was actually at, uh, I was at Annex during the Super Nintendo years, doing the same job, game counseling. They were also, you know, just a stone's throw away from Nintendo. And uh, I was reading a lot of Edge magazine back at the time. It was kind of right when Edge came out. I think the first one I started reading was like Episode Three or something, or Issue Three. Wow, long time and, ago. Yeah, in the back of the – I had kind of taken some time off. I had actually come to Japan uh, just randomly during college in 1993 and just absolutely fell in love with it. I was here for a semester, just kind of an exchange thing, and I just absolutely fell in love with it. And I went back and I got the job at Enix, and I didn't – I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with my life at the point. I knew I wanted to work in games, but I didn't know what to do. 
and uh, in the back of Edge, they had pages and pages and pages of of adverts for uh, you know games industry stuff. Yeah. And this is kind of like when Rare was getting going, and um, I was a big fan of Rare games, and I, I you know so I started looking into all this stuff, and I realized that you know an artist in game stuff was was definitely a thing, and I started realizing how many production studios were even local. We were doing a, a King Arthur game at Enix that with a local outsourcing house called uh, Banley and Associates. And uh, so my roommate was sort of one of the producers on that, and he was like showing me the art. He knew I liked to draw and everything, and he started showing me the like the character designs and stuff like that for the game, and the environment designs and stuff like that. And I was just like, oh my god, like I would love to get into that stuff. And so I quit and went to art school, and uh, you know graduated on Friday, and on Monday I was working at Lobotomy, which was actually run by uh, a bunch of ex leads that I had worked with uh, at Nintendo. In fact, Paul Lang had been one of my my first leads at Nintendo as a game counselor, and he and Brian McMealy and, and Dane Emerson had spun off and started Lobotomy, and so I got a job with them uh, right out of college and uh, never looked back. Wow, that's crazy! So everything sort of just came full circle. Um, went, got your degree, studied hard. And then just straight into it, and then uh, yeah, uh, there was you had like uh, sort of sabbatical at one point to go study again, but since then it's just been games ever since, right? Yeah, I mean, in hindsight, I'm like, God, I should have taken a year off and you know after college and just like traveled the world or whatever. But I was so keen to get going, I just couldn't stop myself, and I literally it was like a weekend off, and then I was I was working. So, but I was so, just so, I was such a keener. I was so excited about getting in and you know, getting started. <laughs> I, I'd wanted to do it for so long and it was right there. I was like, fuck it, I'm doing this. Let's go. And it's probably for the best that you had. Do you think if you delayed it for a year, it would have been more difficult uh, after that 1990 sort of Super Mario world, the Super Famicom coming in and just taking the games industry by storm and introducing it to a, a whole load of new people. I imagine, even though it, I, it doesn't have as much competition today for people who want to be in the games industry, I still imagine it was ramping up back then as well. Yeah, I mean, Redmond, Washington, where all the stuff went down was, you know, it still is kind of one of the epicenters of software development in the world. So I was just really lucky to have grown up in a place like that. I grew up in Woodenville, Washington, which is literally the next town over from Redmond. It was like about a 15-minute drive from my high school to Nintendo. <laughs> Crazy. Um, <laughs> and so there was quite a bit of software development going on. And, and, you know, a huge amount of my friends, my childhood friends, work in software, at either, you know, Amazon or Nintendo or Microsoft or a million other smaller studios. So that I was just really lucky to kind of be, you know, exposed to that stuff from a really early age and to have all these opportunities. So what was the gap between when you uh, started in the industry at Lobotomy uh, to then being at Sega in Japan, working with Mizuguchi-san on, you know, the games like Space Channel 5 and Res? It, I mean, those games came out early 2000 and Space Channel 5 even, I think, 99 with the Dreamcast? It was 99, yeah. So <laughs> that is a short amount of time to be shifting to one of the biggest game companies in the world at that point. Uh, working with someone like Mizuguchi-san. <laughs> it was it was such. I mean, in, my life is a bunch of these crazy coincidences, but then <laughs> it just. Um, I didn't even get into it. Like I was a total Nintendo fanboy when I was younger. I mean, as you can understand, you know, growing up with that stuff, and then you know, being a Nintendo employee, like everybody was just so dedicated. And, uh, you know, when the Genesis came out, I ended up begrudgingly getting one later, but I was really a total Nintendo fanboy. So I didn't really play much Mega, uh, like Master System stuff or, I mean, I started playing some, some import Mega Drive stuff. Um, 
but it wasn't until I was in film school in college, I was going to animation school when I started really falling in love with the, uh, the Saturn. Um, I was, you know, all the arcade ports and Virtua yeah. Fighter 2 on Saturn was just amazing. And I loved Panzer Dragoon and I played the living shit out of Sega Rally, which was Music Sounds game. Um, so I was kind of quite a fan of his stuff and I was starting to pay a lot of attention to, to edge at this, at the time. Uh, and edge was kind of really making some of these guys famous. Like my friend, Jason Brooks, I actually stayed with him in, uh, San Francisco every year. I stay with him for GDC. Uh, he was the original editor of edge and he had kind of discovered Mizuguchi san and a bunch of these guys and kind of really made, you know, made them the celebrities that they are. I mean, he really yeah. kind of discovered them and introduced them to the world. And I was reading this stuff, you know, just rapidly. And so I, I knew all about him. I knew that he had made Sega Rally, which was one of my favorite games. And I played it quite a bit in college, like in the arcade, as well as, um, you know, at the at home on the Saturn. And uh, so I knew all about him. And I was just working at, at this other studio, this bigger studio down the street from Lobotomy called Boss Game Studios after Lobotomy. And uh, I just... I had been to Japan a couple times afterwards to visit friends and stuff that I'd met in college. And I'd bought a bunch of Sega action figures and like I had all these Virtua Fighter dolls and Yoshi stuff and all these like Japanese toys at my desk. And uh, this guy, Kenneth Ibrahim from uh, Alias at the time, came in to teach all the artists the new software release. And he just sat down at my desk. We had like a half hour together where he was going to show me the new tools. And he's looking at my desk going, dude, like you got a toy problem. I was like, yeah, I know. And he's like, it looks like you've you've been to Japan. I was like, yeah, I love Japan. I love Sega. I, I, I would just love to work at Sega someday. It's like my dream. And he's like, actually, I uh, I used to work there. In fact, Mizuguchi-san, my old boss, is coming to E3 next week. Would you like to meet him? I can set up an invite. And oh, wow. I'm just like <laughs> staring at him with my mouth open like, what did you just say? Like, did you just say what I think you just said? And he's like, yeah, yeah, he's cool. Don't worry about it. I could totally hook you up. And like a week later, sure enough, I got an email from, from Tetsu Mizuguchi at Sega Japan. And I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. So I hustled and put together a demo reel and uh, just had a bunch of my paintings and drawings and clips of some of the games I'd worked on at that point and showed it to him. And he was like, cool, you did all this stuff? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, all right, I'm starting a new division. You should come hang out and, and check it out. So uh, I went back to work. I wasn't working E3 back then. Like I was just would go to E3 on my own time just because I wanted to go play all the games and see all the stuff. Yeah. And so I, w I went back to work and I was like, uh, I need to take another week off. They're like, what are you talking about? You just took a week off. I'm like, it's an emergency. I have to take a week <laughs> off. I'm sorry. <laughs> and so me and my best buddy, Dominic, we flew to Tokyo and we hung out with Mizuguchi-san for a couple of days and we went to some crazy parties and met a bunch of cool people. And he was just getting going on starting up uh, UGA at the time. They had kind of a skeleton crew, just a couple guys, and they had the new office, and they were just sort of moving in. And I was just like, oh, my God, like right in the heart of Tokyo. I was like, this is just too much to handle. And and he, you know, at the, we hung out for a couple of days, and at the end I was like, listen, man, I'll do anything to come work here. Like I'm really into this. And he's like, yeah, cool. And then a couple of weeks later he sent me the offer letter, and that that was that. So. Oh, yeah, wow. Crazy <laughs> time. I was just rolling. like, this is awesome. I'm going to Japan. <laughs> I'm going to work at Sega. It's like a dream. Like, I'm going to wake up. This isn't happening, obviously. And all my friends were like, dude, you're going to just move to the other side of the world? Do you even speak Japanese? I was like, no. They're like, like isn't that going to be a problem? I'm like, I don't know. He speaks English. It'll be fine. So uh, <laughs> I got there. And sure enough, you know, he speaks English. And one of the uh, one of the producers, the voice of Ulala. uh Mineko, she also spoke really good English. But other than that, that was about it. So uh, dove in the deep end. And uh, within about a year, I was pretty chatty. And, you know, I kind of just uh, – I never really studied properly, so I still don't read very well. But I can I can talk and I can hang out and I can yeah, find yeah. whatever. So. I, know, I, know, I know that feeling. <laughs> I'm, I'm so lazy when it comes to studying. Uh, but the, the talking part, I, I can get by. I can get by okay. I can't imagine – I can't even imagine what it was like back in like – 
99 doing that. Yeah, this was like literally January of 99. Jesus. And I remember going I, in the first day to wow. actually work and he had everybody come out and like introduce themselves and everyone's just talking to me and I'm like, oh shit. Dude, I don't know what it. anyone's saying. I don't have a clue what's going on. I was like, what have I done? I was like, oh, like all those friends that were like waving the red flags in my face. Maybe I should have listened. Like, oops. I, I remember the first night I arrived in Japan. I was in Osaka. I was staying in an Airbnb that I took four hours to find because my cell phone didn't have any signal because it was a UK carrier. Um, don't get those in Japan. And um, just couldn't find it. I had very limited Japanese before I came out, uh, a bit next to nothing, essentially, trying to find this Airbnb, carrying my suitcase that had all of my worldly possessions in it, <laughs> and just thinking, I've made a huge, huge mistake here. <laughs> this is just not going to work out for me. Um, but uh, it's crazy. So from then on, you would then, you worked on Space Channel 5, you worked on Res, the I imagine there are a lot of people out there who don't know that you worked on those games. I think a lot of people will be surprised to hear that. Um, this was like early Dreamcast uh, progressing into the PS2 era. There weren't many uh, Gaikokujin uh, working in Japan on games at that time. No, in fact, you know, our division was sort of there's. Uh, AM1 was in our building, and then we were in that building. Um, but we were both uh, kind of completely remote from the main uh, corporate, you know, the Honsha, the main corporate building with all the other development studios. They were all down in Haneda, which was like an hour away. Um, so there was literally no one else. And then my friend Greg Tavares was uh, at AM1. He, he came – I think they moved into the building just kind of slightly after we did. So at first there was no one. And then he was there too, which was really cool. So we started having lunches together and, and hanging out. We've become good friends over the years. Um, he had been at Naughty Dog and a bunch of other studios. He's been in the industry like forever. Like he makes me look like a noob. Um, <laughs> so that was cool. But yeah, like there was just none. My friend Trevor Stricker was actually at Sega. Um, oh boy, I'm totally spacing. He did Panstrago and Orta in uh, Smilebit with back during the, the same era. He was at Smilebit, but they again they were an hour away, and we never. We never crossed paths until after he had already quit and moved back to the states. We met at E three through a mutual introduction one time, but we've become yeah. good friends. Um, and I'm like, shit, like that would have been really cool, you know? It would have been cool to hang out. And I met a couple other Americans, and um, let's see who else. There was a, I think, Swedish guy, Hans, who was one of the motion capture guys from AM two. So like, just kind of through mutual contacts and stuff like that, I, I started meeting a couple people from Sega, but we didn't really have a whole lot of crossover because it was just so far away, and we just never. You know, I was so busy with my life and stuff up yeah. where we were, and we just never really went down there for any reason. I went down there a couple times for meetings, but that was about it. So then, from then, um, there was the sort of bust of the Dreamcast. Unfortunately, that was such a great console, but unfortunately, commercially not so great. Um, from then on, how how long did you stay in Japan until you came back? Um, and did you go straight to EA Los Angeles from Sega or was there kind of a stopgap between that? So um, I had I had really gone over there more than anything to work on Res. Like we had talked about it before it was even getting going uh, when I met him, uh, Mizuguchi-san, at E3 in 1998 in Atlanta. Um, and I got over there and they weren't really ready to go even into real pre-production. They had just a, a skeleton crew on it. So I went on to Space Channel 5 for a while. Um, it ended up being a period of about four and a half years altogether. So it was kind of the whole Dreamcast era, really, like from the very beginning to, you know, I mean, I think it launched like, 
a couple, like maybe a month or two before I moved out there in Japan. And then it came out in the States later. Um, and then, you know, towards, I guess it wasn't even the end. It was, it was later on though, when we had the big meeting, Music Your Son called everybody into a big room and, and kind of just dropped the bomb that Sega was, was getting out of the hardware business and abandoning the Dreamcast. And like, it was like a crypt, man. I'll never forget that meeting. Like I was just looking around and everyone's just like mouths open, just staring at him. No one said a word. Oh shit. It was so weird. These old, like these old, you know, veterans that had been there forever were just like staring at him in disbelief. And I was like, this is history right here. This is fucked up. Um, so this was, was then talking about the the cross platform and releasing Res on like PlayStation Two and stuff as well. Yeah, which was in fact the first PlayStation game from Sega. Um, you know, it, it came out on the Dreamcast as well. Here, I don't think it actually even shipped on the in the states on Dreamcast. Um, but yeah, that uh, that whole era was just phenomenal like I, I learned so much and I, I spent so much time with so many cool people and it wasn't until like a maybe a couple months in that I was working there that I realized that the team had been sort of scrapped together from a bunch of kind of cool contractors that were doing a lot of freelance stuff and um, a bunch of people that had been at uh, R&D I forget their name I think it was three um, but it was the it was the Panzer Dragoon team and okay, so we had a bunch okay. We had a bunch of the Panzer Dragoon team guys on the team, and like someone mentioned that, and I was like, "Wait, what did you just say?" And and the the art director from Space Channel Five, Miyabi-san, she had been one of the artists on Panzer Dragoon Saga, which was like also one of my favorite games of all time. And I'm like, "Wait, you worked on that?" She's like, "Yeah." And so did he, and so did he, and so did she, and so did she, and he. And I'm just like running around the room, like confirming. I'm like, "Did you work on Panzer Dragoon? Like, you did this?" And uh, Yamada-san and Okitsu-san were two of the planners, and they had both been, like, you know, senior dudes on both – on all three of the games. Like, you know, and Yamada-san, like, was all excited that I was excited about it. He was, like, whipping out these old maps of, like, soft image, like, top-down maps of all the, the levels for Pence Dragoon's Vi. And I'm just, like, qu- quivering at this point, you know, just, like, flipping out. But um, getting back to the topic, uh, I <laughs> – I was really, really impressed. Like I worked with these guys and and particularly the res team. I mean, those guys were just some of the most talented people I've ever like worked with in my entire career. And they made me really understand the difference between an artist and a designer. And I had been very much trained as an artist and I had always been an artist and I just thought like an artist, which was to make cool stuff. But designers have a real goal in mind and they have a real process that they employ to come to the desired results and so this was all new to me like I just I never had that kind of level of training I'd been to film school and like studied animation and stuff and went straight into games so this was all foreign concept to me but watching them work and them teaching me all this stuff I realized that to stay competitive like I wanted to get anywhere near these guys like I, I felt like they were so much better than me and so much more talented and so much more sort of dedicated to their craft with the with their processes that they employed um, I decided to to when I did decide to leave, um, I decided to go back to school, and so I went to industrial design school in Cali- California, and studied uh, sort of product design and like uh, entertainment design, like you know concept art for movies and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and then my friend Alan Yu uh, sort of duped me into coming in. And he he thought it was he told me it was just to come look around and hang out. But it turned out being like a five-hour interview, and uh, they offered me a really sweet job working with Steven Spielberg on the LMNO project. And oh, I was so burned okay. out from school at the time. I was so tired, and I, I I was like, all right. And I told my wife, I was like, I think I'm dropping out of college a year – like a semester before I graduate because um, I want to go work with Steven Spielberg at EA. And she's like, you, you should do that. You should take that job. <laughs> <laughs> so That's I did. A good- 
it's a good bit of support. <laughs> yeah, no, I was really, I was really stunned. I mean, Art Center. I went to this college called Art Center in in Pasadena, which is like the Marine boot camp. It's like Navy SEAL training for industrial designers. It's really brutal. I mean, I learned a ton and made some great friends, but it was super hardcore, and I was just exhausted. So the idea of just a nine to five job seemed like heaven to me. So from then, how how long were you then there before you decided to create your own studio what was what was that sort of mentality was it the same sort of thing that you'd got burnt out doing work for now a nine-to-five job that has swings and roundabouts especially in the games industry with hours and that kind of thing um, yeah I, I think i mean i was so i was i was a concept artist at that point um and i was doing concept art for this this project called elmino with, with steven spielberg and then um i was on that project for like a year and a half and then that kind of started flatlining and they were kind of focused on mechanics and didn't really need a concept artist anymore. They weren't, they weren't making any more assets. They were just focusing on like their, their one set that we'd already all designed. I'd done a bunch of paintings and designs for like this one area of the game. Um, so I moved to the command and conquer team. So the first game was kind of like this dark sci-fi stuff. And then I moved to the command and conquer four team. Well, it wasn't four at the time. It was another game, but we, we ended up being command and conquer four and did a bunch of kind of like dark sci-fi stuff for that, which I was really enjoying. I mean, this is what I'd studied and I was really into it. Yeah. Um, and then I moved, we were having our first son and we decided that living in Santa Monica on a single salary was, was insanity. And I didn't want my wife to have to go back to work. So we moved back to Seattle where I'm from and I took a job with my old friend, Mark Long at zombie studios. So I was art directing there on a game called blacklight tango down. Yes. Also, I remember that game. Yeah. That, that was also kind of dark, gritty sci-fi and, you know, so this had been three, kind of four projects in a row that we were working on that had been the same sort of dark, gritty sci-fi stuff. And I was like, you know what? Kind of ready for a change. Um, and I kind of wanted to do just like a kind of a weekend game, like, you know, kind of nights and weekends. Like right when my son was born, like I wasn't getting out much. I was, you know, staying home with the wife and helping out and kind of just spending a lot of time at home. And so yeah. I was like, well, I, need, I need a hobby project. So I, I talked to my friends, uh, my good friend Barut Pfeiffer, who is the AI programmer from the uh, Spielberg stuff. And uh, he had just recently quit. And um, I was like, hey, dude, let's let's just make make a little indie game. And he's like, yeah, that, that sounds great. So we um, just kind of started working on Skulls of the Shogun. And uh, it was just kind of nights and weekends sort of thing. And it was really refreshing. Like I wanted to design the whole production to be, you know, simple and light and like small enough that, that one artist and animator could do the whole thing. So I want to do something really abstract and simple characters. Um, and it was just really refreshing to get back into that really cartoony kind of like light kind of goofy stuff compared yeah. to all this dark, really realistic, gritty, yeah. hard edge sci-fi <laughs> stuff imagine, I've been doing yeah. for so long. Uh, and that just went really well. And so uh, <clears throat> my dad had been sort of an entrepreneur his whole life and he kept trying to push me into making my own company forever. And I always thought making your own company meant having 50 or 100 people and, you know, securing budgets and all this stuff, which I can sadly relate to a lot more now. But at the time, it was just a handful of us. It was just me and Baru really at the beginning. And uh, so he gave us some funding and we, we both, you know, quit our other gigs and just moved into it full time. Um, and it just kind of took off from there. And uh, you know, must have I didn't, crazy. didn't really think it through, really, I wouldn't say. We just kind of did it. And because it just I'm, sort of... I'm thinking in my head. So this was what, 2009 um, that you di- you decided to do this. Um, but you didn't release Schools of the Shogun until 2013 so that is a huge gap that is a big space of time i imagine of uncertainty constant nervousness about stuff or or were you always like this game's great it's gonna be great we'll be fine well it Um, it had a long history so like we didn't i didn't i mean he had i think just quit ea um 
but I stayed at my job. I was working like my you know nine to five, and then I would go home and kind of you know do dinner and stuff like that. And then like kind of late at night, I would just sit down every night and uh, just sit in front of the computer and just crank on this stuff and get on a Skype call with with Brute, and we would just crank on stuff. And so I didn't actually quit my job until like March. I think I started in June. So there's about nine months there. I wasn't taking any money for it or anything. Like we okay. were keeping costs way down. And uh, I think I yeah I quit in March, and so I think by April I started collecting like my first like actual paycheck like this. And then <clears throat> we didn't have that much money, so I moved on to uh, you know we got a deal with, with Microsoft. They they signed the game, and um, you know that sort of elevated things. And then uh, Ben Vance was another engineer we'd both worked with on the same project. We, uh, he showed some interest. We're like heck yeah, we could use another you know talented engineer slash designer kind of guy. And so uh, the three of us just kind of started marching on. And then my friend Paul Schreiber joined us. He moved up from L.A. too. And then we just kind of kept expanding. And before long, I had this company. I was like looking around like, oh, huh, weird. This is crazy. So, <laughs> and, and here you are. I mean, yeah. oh, I don't want to jump forward too much, um, but it seems to have been going pretty well. You've made two games since then. Both have been reviewed really well. Uh, I imagine that as the company is expanding – uh, everything's seeming pretty good. I imagine it's probably chaotic and crazy, but it sounds pretty good. It is chaotic good. and crazy, and it's a lot more... I mean, I think any indie that has worked at a AAA studio will tell you, you know, no matter how many years you've been making games, there's a lot you don't know about running a company. Like, it's it's not even the same thing at all. So there's a lot of stuff to learn about management and, you know, securing funding and budgeting and making sure that you, you know actually ship the thing on time and like juggling projects to make sure there's enough, you know, funding coming to paying everybody's paychecks and stuff like yeah. that. Like it, it really is a, a massive sort of undertaking. Uh, luckily I am nowhere near the adult to do all that stuff. Um, I, <laughs> I hired a good friend of mine. Um, one of my good best friends, Raz Joshi, uh, was the guy that helped me get off the kind of, uh, stalling LMNO project onto command and conquer. He was a producer at EA for all that time. Um, and years later, this stuff was kind of getting a little out of hand. I was like, I need an adult in the house. I needed a producer who's experienced that understands all this stuff. And so I sort of uh, convinced him to come to Seattle and join the studio. And then I was like, listen, actually, we're going to move to Japan in a couple of years. And, uh, you know, wouldn't that be great? Like, you're bored of L.A., right? Like, this will be fun. And so uh, <laughs> I don't know how I did it, but I talked him into it. And uh, the two of us sort of run the company. So he he sort of runs – yeah, the studio and a lot of the management stuff, and then I'm sort of the creative director and the art director. Excellent. Well, uh, congratulations. I mean, you've basically won the game of indie development in a sense. Moving that that sort of well, transference from you know, we, AAA to being your own uh, creative director of your own games and being able to have the not the luxury but the the success to be able to do that kind of thing. Yeah, we. You know, we, we started with a lot of other contemporaries that sort of, uh, you know, kind of right around that same indie boom, like, and a lot of my friends have moved on and done zillions of dollars and like, you know, really hit it big. Like all the um, super giant guys were co-workers of ours at EALA at the time. Okay. And that they have gone on to just huge success and I'm super happy for them. They're super <laughs> talented. They're all the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Um and they sold a zillion more units than we ever did. So, I mean, we were successful in that we get to keep doing it and we we somehow yeah. managed to, to make ends meet and get by and, and move on to the next thing. But we've never really, you know, been super successful. Uh, the games yeah. have reviewed really well, which is really, you know, I guess 
why I do it. I guess that's the most important thing is that that people you know appreciate our work and, and understand that, that that we love to do these things. Um, but I would like to have a game that makes a bit more money at some point, a bit more of a savings thing. The nice thing about living in Japan is actually like people are like so terrified about Japan. They're like, oh my God, it hurts so expensive. I'm like, no, that's that's Tokyo. That's like Manhattan. Yeah, yeah. But if you live out in the countryside, yeah. like we live in, in in fairly close to downtown Kyoto. I mean, it's like a 10-minute bike ride into the heart of the city. Uh, and I've never paid this little rent, you know, like I not for the last 15 years if I've had agree. this little, you know, uh, expenses. I mean, our health insurance in this country is amazing. Uh, you know, I have two little boys and they're always, you know, dropping off of something and banging their heads or smacking <laughs> into something. And like I was just like running out of money going to the emergency room all the time. And here, like I can totally afford to, to have them both, you know, getting banged up all the time. Uh, I don't have a car. I ride my bike all the way, you know, everywhere. No one at the company even has a car. Like we got this other, there's eight guys out here and none of us have a car, uh, which is fantastic. It's awesome. It's a great lifestyle. And so it's a it's a good place to have a small studio because the costs are fixed and they're much lower than, than a lot of other places. Uh, there's a lot of great talent in the city and uh, it's just an amazing place with a lot of legacy and history. And, you know, I've, I've started like – just through random introductions and through mutual friends and stuff, started to meet a bunch of the old school like Nintendo guys, and so I'm, you know, hanging out with some of those guys and just like yeah, picking cause... their brains, for old stories, and just like, oh my god, like this is this is amazing. This is kind of the the, the dreams <laughs> why I came here. Yeah, because you're you're sort of in that area, aren't you? Uh, I mean, you have the Kyoto guys. There's also uh, Dylan with Q, and then those guys around there as well. There there seems to be a lot of focus on Kyoto now, especially with Bit Summit uh, as well. Moving yeah. sort of away from Tokyo a bit more, uh, especially with the introduction of a lot more um, foreign developers coming over and working. I, on I that would side. say that I would say there are probably more foreign game developers in Kyoto than Tokyo. Yeah, I would think so too. I know quite a few. I mean, just, who are in just Kyoto. between Q and Vitae and Nintendo and, yeah. and 17 bit, um, even just those studios alone, there's, you know, there's just, a, there's a really cool tight knit community of developers here. We all, you know, drink together and go camping together and snowboarding and stuff like that. Um, it's a really cool scene and everyone just is in love with the city and, you know, it's just a cool place. I mean, Dylan has been here for years yeah. and he was one of the big driving forces behind, uh, you know, kind of, he was like, dude, you got to come to Kyoto. He's like, don't even think about moving to Fukuoka or going back to Tokyo or anything. He's like, trust me, like you gotta, you gotta come to Kyoto. So we came and checked it out and I was like, wow, this is, this is pretty fantastic. So ne that was ne that. Never looked back. Uh, which no, is no. excellent. I mean, you're only about two and about a bit hours away from me uh, i'm deep in a knacker at the moment i'm moving soon to a, a bit a bit more of a bigger city closer to kyoto uh in okayama so not that far away from you guys um but yeah it's amazing to hear that going so well and it's awesome to hear st stuff about I, I almost succeeding in game design and game development in japan itself it's something that a lot of people thought was impossible for so long um due to the way the japanese industry works and japanese companies like nintendo and capcom who have been very traditionally um not hiring people from other countries sometimes there is some stigma around that um, but it's so great to hear that um but jake you are here to talk about other games i am um but we might return to your own games in a little bit. <laughs> but we are here to talk about eight games that you would take with you to a deserted island. The games that you will play for the rest of your days. So I think it's about time that we jump into those now. And um, I wondered how long it would take for someone to choose your, your first game. The first game that you're taking with you. I wondered how long it would be until someone chose this game. And it happens to be only two weeks since its release. 
And I fully understand why, because it's been on my brain every single day since it launched. Um, I'm 60 hours into this game and I have done absolutely sweet fuck all in it towards finishing it. Um, And I'm so excited to talk about it and get to hear what you think. So why don't we listen to some truly beautiful music from this first game and let's dive straight into Jake's final games. So kicking off Jake's list today, uh, I'm so happy that we're already getting into this game. Here we go. Here's the whole podcast now. Um, (laughs) It's developed by Nintendo. Uh, Their EPD uh, team, directed by the one and only uh, Fujibayashi-san, produced obviously by Aonuma-san as well. It released both on the Wii U and the brand new Nintendo Switch uh, on launch of the Nintendo Switch on March 3rd, 2017. It's up there quite possibly in my head as one of the best games I've ever played um, and I do not want to stop playing anytime soon it's the latest release in the Legend of Zelda series it's the Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild Jake please tell me why the first game that you're taking with you is Breath of the Wild Um, because it's the best game I've ever played and I don't even I don't even (laughs) like I don't even hesitate saying that like I only played it for a couple hours before I just sort of put the controller down. I was like, I think this is my favorite game ever. Like, I've always loved The Legend of Zelda. Like, the first Legend of Zelda was a turning point in my life. I mean, it really sort of cemented my fascination and my passion for adventure games and and just sort of video games in general and kind of... You know, sort of teaching me about Miyamoto-san and stuff. This is before Nintendo Power Magazine even existed. They were doing the Nintendo Fan Club sort of newsletter thing, and they would send it out. And they had an interview with you know Miyamoto-san about why he made this game and where he came from, and like you know, putting names to all these things. And 
I've, I've loved the series ever since. I mean, the Super Famicom version is also, or the Super Nintendo version is also one of my favorites of all time. Ocarina is also a favorite, Majora's Mask. Um, they're all great, but they have gotten a little bit more handholdy and kind of like a little bit more constrained and less sort of yeah. magical over the last uh, couple of incarnations. I think rote is the word I would use. I think definitely following. Just, yeah, like a little too constrained. I mean, I think my my favorite up until this point was still the first one because there was such a sense of adventure and wonder and like mystery and danger. And like you're just kind of noodling around, like not sure what you should do. Can I go over here? Oh, I never noticed this thing was here. And like you, you know, at the time there was nothing like it. And that game just absolutely blew me away. I mean, I was just so blown away by it. I actually, it was the first day of seventh grade, uh, summer vacation, like after seventh grade. And um, my best friend's older brother kicked my skateboard out from underneath me. And I fell back and shattered my wrist. And we lived on a lake. And all the neighborhood kids came to my house every day, all summer, every summer to swim in the lake. And then we would go skateboarding and biking. And the first day of summer vacation, this guy kicked my skateboard out from underneath me, shattered my elbow and my wrist. And I had a cast up to my shoulder. And the doctor's like, no swimming for you, no skateboarding, no nothing this summer. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, this is hell on earth. And my mom felt so bad for me. She took me down to the little Nintendo games kiosk in the mall at Alterwood Mall. And uh, I asked the guy, like, what, what's new? What's fresh? And he's like, well, this game was by this guy that did the Super Mario game. And I remember it was like it came out. I looked at the box. I was like, I don't know what the hell this is. Like, top down. Like, this is weird. You know, there wasn't anything like that at the time. And I bought it. And um, my mom took me home. And the, the whole neighborhood was out running around swimming and doing stuff on my dock. And I could hear him screaming and having fun splashing in the water. And I was just like, motherfuckers. <laughs> and and I, I turned this game on, this gold cartridge. I put it in and started playing it. And, you know, 10 hours later when it was finally – I'm from Seattle. And in the summertime, it gets dark real late. It gets dark at like really about 10 o'clock. Yeah. And so like 9 or 10 o'clock, people started peeling up. And they had to kind of walk right past the sort of the, the den of our house to get back out to the main street. And I was just sitting there playing this game like transfixed. You know, it had been like 10 hours straight or whatever that I'd been playing it. And uh, everybody comes in. They're like, oh, let me play. Let me play. I'm like, fuck all of you. You guys are all swimming all day. Like, this is my game. You are welcome to watch. You are welcome to sit there. I am in love with this thing, and I'm not giving up the controller. And I played it all summer. And it just definitely one of my favorite games of all time. It's not on my list because, you know, the mechanics have aged, and it's not as fresh as it once was. But at the time, it was definitely the most magical thing I'd ever played. And, and this new one takes me back to so many of those feelings in such a way that I never thought I would feel again. Like I'm just so utterly destroyed by how amazing this game is and how far they've strayed from the formula. And I just, I don't understand. I don't understand how it got made. I don't understand what happened internally, like how they were able to just pull the emergency brake and slide off all the tracks and completely reboot this series to be utterly the best open world game I've ever played it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't compute at all. But I, I'm honestly just like, I'm like, am I dreaming? Like, this is literally my favorite game of all time. Like, it's, I, I think it's almost perfect. Like, the camera, the controls, the art, the art direction, the music, the sound, the combat, the physics, you know, the, just the sheer adventure. I mean, I don't have a goal in mind. I'm just running around trying to yeah. kind of find, see the world. I'm just traveling, literally, and just like constant you know weird little adventures and weird little kind of side quests and weird little things that i'm discovering and and it just feels so good to play and i'm climbing everything and i'm jumping off everything with my hang glider and i'm just exploring and looking over here and looking over there and i just 
it's like the culmination of all things great about all video games. And I swear to God, it did not take me long to realize that I think this is the best game that people have ever made straight up. Like, bravo, Nintendo. It's it's almost like validation you saying that because in a sense, I am hesitant to say that because of the hyperbole that some people might mistake it for and people will be like, oh, it's only been out two weeks, you know, let it settle down, then we'll see kind of thing. But the thing is, I've spoken to a lot of people who, like yourself, have worked in the games industry for a long time, have played games ever since the 80s, uh, even the 70s, and almost every single person who is playing Zelda right now who has been in the games industry for 20 plus years, 15 plus years, is saying to me that this is, if not one of the best games they've ever played, if not the best game they have ever played. And I find it hard to find anyone who can judge such things better than people who've worked in the industry for so long, who have seen the trends in video games change over the years. And that almost validates in my own head when I play it and I'm like, this is it. This is the best goddamn game I have ever played. Ever. I came into games when I the Super Nintendo was launched and Ocarina of Time is this thing that stands out to me as one of the defining moments of when I thought, fucking video games, dude. This is, this is amazing. This is what I like doing. This is what I want to be involved in. And then having sort of fallen out of love with the series over the years, I've always had a fondness for the characters and the the aesthetics. Um, But over the years, it has become a little rote and too much for me that every one is the same. That Breath of the Wild has just absolutely blown me away. And it just doesn't make sense. I just can't. It does not put my head around it. I'm like, what happened here? Who? made this like what are you talking about how did this come to be like who made all these massive decisions and like you know to never have made an open world game and then be like yeah japanese you know they don't really do open world games we don't really do that like we leave that to bethesda's and all these guys yeah and fuck that we're gonna fucking make the best one ever like what (laughs) wait what like i still am just like wait it's just stuff that makes sense as well that's they they don't apply to the laws of gaming in the sense that, oh, we can't do this because it's too challenging or we can't do this because there's no point. It's it, the, the idea that you can have a game where it has different environments and say you go to a cold environment, but you have like a sword that is made of fire. Of course, that would heat you up a little bit, right? That's <laughs> logic. But in games, that wouldn't happen. But in a Nintendo game, ah, oh, like... It I mean, happens. I love I yeah. love the the sort of systems driven stuff. Like I went to one of the best talks I ever went to at GDC was um, excuse me, um, the Dishonored talk by Harvey Smith about sort of how they would apply these elements to things instead of like custom coding all these different interactions. They would say, all right, if this thing's fire, if this thing's wood, and they meet. You know, it's going to catch on fire and it's going to be based on its, its, you know, size and all this stuff. And, you know, like the Far Cry 2 stuff. Uh, I was a big fan of Far Cry 2 and, and, and all the Far Cry's really. Yeah. Um, but the – like it's still unlayering. Like I'm 45 hours in and I also have done fuck all. I finally beat the first boss. I went – you know, I did the first dungeon like at 40 hours in. Yeah. Um, I still haven't seen the whole map. I'm still kind of running around nope, adventuring. I <laughs> I haven't but it's still like yet. revealing itself like these layers are just like, like it's like an onion it's just like another layer and another layer and another layer of depth another thing that I didn't know you could do and so 
I don't know if you've done the puzzle. Uh, there was one of the, the shrines where, um, <coughs> sorry, my allergies kicking my throat season up. Um, one of the dungeons where not the dungeons, but the, the smaller shrines, which also just fuck the art direction is so good. <laughs> like every time I walk into one of those things, I'm just like, what even happened here? Like, it's like this weird Japanese may like, you know, like art nouveau meets like Japanese pottery. Like it doesn't make any sense. Um, but there's a dungeon or a shrine there where you need to kind of like use the power of electricity to kind of like seal these circuits and, and get the electricity to move around the whole place. And uh, I got through before too long. It took me a while to kind of figure out knowing what the, what the order of stuff was. Like you can, you know, use your powers to move these steel objects around and kind of connect these circuits. And so I forget who I was talking to, but they're like, yeah, you could just drop your fucking metal swords on the ground and use those as the circuit connectors because they're made of steel and steel is a conductor. I was just like, <laughs> what? Like, I'm sat here. I'm sat here. Okay. So I'm sat here. I've played the game for over 60 hours and I haven't even found a shrine that has electric puzzles yet. <laughs> there's a lot of shrines in the game. And are, I also have found, I think, 40. And I think there's over 100 something. I've done, I think 48 and I yeah I've not even found one of the electric ones yet so and that just tells you how expansive this goddamn game is and just and that that the way you solve the puzzle it it it, it just makes sense right and that it's annoying because games are frustrating sometimes for the fact that you in your head know that this would work this is something that would work like if you want right. to move or, or, or jump over something you know that that it would work and you're like ah the game limitations like it breaks my immersion because i know this would work but the game is limited to not allow that or they didn't have time to implement this or something like that which can be frustrating but is understandable during game development these things happen but for some reason i have not once had an issue with breath of the wild where i thought in my head i wonder if this will work and lo and behold it it works I, it I just, just yeah it just it, works and i just don't get how they've done it <laughs> and it seems so simple as well um like it doesn't seem like anything complex is ever happening um i know that's the magic of it like it just seems like everything's just like so like it just fits right into its slots and you're like but yeah i don't like there's yeah. so many ways to do it i mean i love i love emergent gameplay i love like non sort of designer specific puzzles i love when you've got you know the freedom to kind of come to your own conclusions and <coughs> crack your own way through it and so many things in this game like i've i wonder how the hell i'm gonna get over it. like how the hell am i supposed to get over it? like what if i just cut down this tree like could i literally just cross over the bridge that i leave with this tree brunk yes yes you can or i was watching this video the other day of these guys were like making fires on purpose in the grass and that creates an updraft and then you jump onto it with your glider and it drafts you up into the air and you can like do these these you know attacks from the air even in a flat area and it's just like it's so open and creative and it just allows you to sort of completely come up with your own strategies like i just i love that kind of gameplay like i love when you've just got to like you're in the world you understand the rules you understand the physics everything's not janky it makes sense and you can just 
you can improvise. I mean, this is yeah. uh, something that I was really big on with uh, with my game, Galaxy, was like this understanding the physics, understanding the world, and being able to improvise and use the environment to your advantage. And like, it's like, I love watching old uh, kung fu movies. Like that's Haunted Temple Studio. Actually, the name came from my love of uh, the Chinese uh, Pyeongpi, the Kyonchi like the Chinese vampires and the, and the, the Taoist monks that always go in bravely and, and take these guys out. And they're always doing that. They're like, they're like over, they're like outgunned, right? They're fighting this really powerful vampire and they're like kicking chairs and knocking them over and then they'll grab a broom and shove it up his ass. And like, they're just constantly improvising and like using the environment to their advantage and, and just like using anything at their disposal. And like Jackie Chan's the master of this stuff. And so yeah. whenever, whenever you get into a game that allows you to do those kind of things, like Far Cry to a certain extent, um, you know, Halo definitely had some of that stuff. Like, just using the physics and the environment at this like breakneck pace where you're not like, can I, can I interact with that? Like, I don't know if I can use that thing or not. Uh, you know, like some of the really photorealistic games, I, I kind of have a hard time playing cause I'm just like, well, I feel like I should be able to jump over that ledge, but you know, there's an invisible barrier cause you're not really meant to go over there. And like, yeah. you're like, but I would. And like, I feel like that's my instinct is to jump over that way and run away, but I can't because the game says no. Cause the designer didn't want me to. And they didn't think about that. This game is just like here, Go. Just do like, it. And, and fucking whatever, whatever goes. And, and that whatever impro- you can work out. And that, like, improvisation, like, uh, just before we started recording, I was, of course, playing Zelda, and um, I found a frozen shrine. Um, like, I was in, like, a cold region, and there was a shrine that was completely encased in ice, and I had very little um, fire arrows. I didn't want to use my flame sword thing uh, to melt it. So I was like, well, I have some wood. Um, I could just like put the wood next to it and set it on fire. Right. That will melt the ice. And I was like, okay, I don't know if this will work. Cause usually in games that, that probably wouldn't work. There would be a, a specific way to do it. Exactly. Um, so I just lay, I I put a ring of wood around around the temple, like big iceberg in the middle of this snowy uh, area. And uh, I just ran with a torch and some fire around in a circle, lighting all the wood. And they all lit up and they all melt, melted the ice. <laughs> and the shrine opened. And I was like, because that's what makes sense. And it, and it just, oh. It's those moments in that game that what doesn't make sense is the direct predecessor, you know, was so linear and every single thing was like the designer thought of a clever way for you to handle the situation and do the one thing. And for them to have been so deep into that for so long and to just completely jump off the rails and completely go the other direction and not only take that decision and make that decision and go in that different direction and and abandon all the stuff but to fucking nail it i mean to nail it in a consistent way that doesn't even make sense like have you found a single floating tree or fucking rock that was out of place or npc that was stuck in the environment or you know fallen through the world like i haven't found anything in 45 hours. If this was a Bethesda game, like I would have had to reboot 10 times by now. It, and I love Bethesda games. Don't get me wrong. But like it's bulletproof and it just doesn't make any sense. It's weird because obviously people uh, have brought up the uh, the performance and stuff. But the performance is different to how the game itself is buggy. And it just isn't buggy. And when it has it all these isn't. systems in play, it's that typical Nintendo polish just where you just, it's so immaculate. And 
having been someone who worked in QA for four years, it, it you notice things way easier than other people do and it's just a part of your job and it can be grating that i stopped playing certain games because i just couldn't handle the imperfections almost it's like games were ruined for me in a way because of my job and one of the things with nintendo games is they're so consistent and you can say what you like about the performance but that's that's a different issue compared to if you were doing a quest and the quest broke or if you set fire to something and it wasn't melting the ice and just all of the systems that Nintendo have put in place in this game, they work. And I've never once came across it not working. And that's just fucking amazing, right? <laughs> Again, it's just like, it just, I keep coming back to this doesn't make any sense. I, like, what? Like, I just, this doesn't make any sense. Like, I just keep saying that. I'm like, how did this, what? Like, why, how? I mean, I know that, I know they put a lot of effort into it. And uh, I know that they, you know, took vast swaths of the studio offline, <clears throat> you know, during milestones and had everybody on the team, like, you know, 300 people or something, had everybody on the team play through the game for like two weeks at a time before a big milestone to kind of find all the issues and just clear out everything and like log all the issues that were that they were finding. And, and they did it. I mean, it, most companies can't afford to to put those kind of resources towards this sort of thing. But I think it paid off. I mean, you know, it's, it's currently standing as one of the top Metacritic rated games of all time. And, you know, a lot of people that I trust and really respect in the industry, and they're all just like absolutely smitten with this game. I mean, even yeah. people that aren't like huge Zelda fans necessarily are just like, this is unbelievable. Like they, they don't even have words to describe how much they're loving it. And everyone's just like going home every night and just playing Zelda all night. And, <laughs> and the thing it's the, the beauty of a new console as well. Um, you would think that would be sort of maybe the magical edge that pushed a game that was maybe subpar over. Cause everyone would be kind of like, well, it's exciting to have a new console and all that. But, Zelda's almost taken away from this switch. I like the switch a lot. I think it's really good. Uh, I'm but, actually into it too. Yeah, a lot. But, but Zelda is what's great right now. <laughs> well, you know, some some of the reviews I read were like, you know, Twilight Princess got really high scores, and like all these games are scoring in the high nineties and stuff. And you're like, yeah. And there was excitement, and everyone's always excited about a new Zelda game because they're always great. But like, this is not like that this is so beyond all of that that it doesn't even like it shouldn't be measured in the same like breath like i just i mean i I hate the sound like this yeah it does sound like hyperbole it does sound like i'm you know completely yeah overstating it but i'm not like and it's even easy for me to say these things because it's so solid and it's so engaging and it's so well done i mean like every element of the music and the direction and the art direction and the pacing and the timing of everything and I'm just like I I just can't believe this game. I just can't believe it. It's it, and it just has these weird moments that it's one of those games a lot of people talk about games where you sort of make your own story and and it does bring back that time when obviously there was no internet or there was very mm-hmm. limited amounts um but there is a, a, a certain wonder to finding things in that game because I've had nothing spoiled for me. I'm very lucky. I've had no map spoilers. I've had no spoilers of any kind so everything i find is new and i was just exploring before and i found one singular sakura tree in uh, next to a pond and it was just on the top of a hill and it, it was such a beautiful little thing and i found like a chest and i was like 
this is amazing. I'm just going to chill here next to this one sakura tree that I found in this whole map. And just those <laughs> kind of little stories that you make for yourself are also a big part of that. That's how I describe it. I'm like, I'm just constantly playing like i'm just like what's over there i'm gonna try to make it to that ridge because that's i haven't been over that direction and like you just keep running into all these little mishaps and you know weird little adventures and little combat moments and you know sometimes they escalate and, and things get real serious and, and you die a lot like you die a lot in this game like it's yeah <laughs> i wouldn't i wouldn't say it's like dark souls level of, of difficulty or anything but like it's way harder than any other zelda game and that's another one of those really bold decisions they made where they're like hey Let's go ahead and scoot away from this kind of like really like allowing this to be really kind of friendly for for everybody. Like it's it's challenging and you gotta use your wits and your timing and and you know, combat is is engaging and especially some of the bigger monsters and stuff like that. Like you really gotta just kind of stay on your toes and really be applying all your senses and, and like even when I die, I'm like I'm like right back into it. I'm like, oh get me back in there. Like, oh and fuck, that was you know it, it just it just works because Link never improves. He stays the same from zero to the end of the game. The, the only thing that changes is what you find. And you just gradually explore more areas that have better armor, better weapons. But as soon as all that stuff breaks uh, and you, you find yourself sort of running around sort of naked again, you're almost like back to zero. And I really, really like that, that you are forever just the same player you can be amazing or you can be really bad and it just depends on where you are in this world and the whole world just carries on without you um you're not the sort of hero of time that although everyone knows link as the hero of time even in this version of hyrule too um but it is challenging but it's not challenging to the extent of the game is hard just that you just need to put a little like exploration into it and a little more experimentation and you as a person and as a player naturally think better and become better because of that i don't think it's a case of skill more just experimentation than anything yeah just like a willingness to explore and like i mean it's all these little stories they're all your stories i mean this is why i love you know, these kind of games. I love the Bethesda stuff. I love, you know, the Far Cry's and stuff like that because you you have these kind of overarching missile mission goals or these kind of like, you know, bigger long-term goals. Yeah. But in the meantime, you're just fucking around and like stuff's happening and you're just having all these little adventures that are not scripted. They're not designed. They're, they're just, uh, you know, emergent and they're just a, a happening in the world. And, uh, you know, it just... I don't know. I'm just it, cooking shit. I'm just, yeah, just cooking I'm shit. I'm just like, no, I'm, I'm going to go out and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find, like I have my, my shrine, my slate set to those big radishes. So instead of looking for shrines, my alarm goes off whenever there's a radish nearby, which you cook and it gives you extra hearts, which is super great for a game where like I've been playing for this long and I've only got five hearts 45 hours in, <laughs> which is crazy. If you told me that was how this was going to go down, I'd be like, what are you even talking about? So, so you're a stamina man. Yeah, I'm a stamina man, and uh, but even a lot of the shrines, I'll go activate them so I can warp back there at some point. But like, I won't even go in. I'm just like, yeah. I just want to see the world right now. I just want to kind of try to get <laughs> to grips with where things are at, and it's so big. And this is, I mean, coming back to why this is the first on my list because I honestly think it would take you, uh, I don't even know how long to actually like learn the whole map and see everything and experience everything that's in this game. Uh, and I, you know, like I'm, I'm playing it in English. 
and I've already decided that I'm going to play it again in Japanese as soon as as soon as I finish. Like I just I can't wait. I I bought the DLC. Like I'm so fucking excited. There's more Zelda coming, you know, this soon. I don't know what the DLC even entails. <laughs> I don't care. Whatever it is, it's going to be. <laughs> it's mine and I'm it's you can't take it away from me and uh I just I honestly think that this game is something that you could I mean if I had to pick one game at this point I think it would probably be this game just because I I honestly think by the time you had been all over the whole map you'd have forgotten the other half of it and you could start again so yeah well, someone did joke on Twitter that after this game came out that I would eventually change final games to just be final game and it would just be Zelda Breath of the Wild. Um <laughs> so I don't want to live up to that reputation too much and I think I I think no more needs to be said other than if you haven't played Breath of the Wild yet, uh you really really go need to at some point if you can. It's unlike anything else. Um but Jake's first game, of course, Breath of the Wild and entirely justified and you validated my own thoughts about the game as well, Jake. So I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> So why don't we listen to some music from this next game then, and let's dive straight into the other seven games that we have to talk about too. <laughs> just before we dive into the second game then jake um we have to talk a little bit about the deserted place in which we're going to be sending you so it isn't just some random deserted island uh we allow you the choice of where you want to be stranded so the rule is that it has to be somewhere from video games um anywhere from video games that maybe you enjoy you'd like chilling out um but there will be no one there. You will be stranded. It will be empty. Um, it is a deserted place. Um, but we allow you the luxury of being able to sort of enjoy the eight games that you've chosen. Not too too much fighting for survival and that kind of thing. Um, but there will be monsters if you choose a place that is inhabited by them. But maybe this place has a safe haven or maybe a save room if you chose somewhere pretty crazy, like a Resident Evil mansion or something like that. Um, but no one who can help you escape. So we allow you to choose. So is there anything running through your head right now that you would like? Yeah, the, the instant you said that, I knew what it was. It's the <laughs> town in the Breath of the Wild that's kind of the – I don't want to say Hawaiian, but it's kind of like the warm, tropical, beach-themed town uh, okay. that's down on the southeast uh, coast. I forget the name of it. It's a fishing village. Uh, is it Lana Do you Fishing Village maybe? I forget I the name so. of it. Down, down the side of the mountain. Uh, yeah, like there's a, a steep, steep cliff to get down to the town. 
Uh, it's right in the water, and it's got this really cool architecture, and it's, it's like something you'd see in the Condé Nast magazine, like super designer, like fancy kind of like houses built out of like co- like giant coconuts or something. And as soon as I found it, like I peeked over that ridge, I was like, well, I wonder if there's anything down by the water down here. And I saw the town, then I went down there, and the chill music started playing, and the wind is going through the drapes, and like you're right on the beach, and it's warm and tropical, and the music's kind of that really laid back stuff, and... I was just like, I'm going to stop adventuring for a while and I'm going to completely explore this whole town. I'm going to talk to everybody. And I just loved it. I just sat there and just kind of watched the storms out at sea and was just like hanging out. I was like, this is it. And as soon as you said that, I was like, yes, as long as I can get a giant TV screen uh, and surround sound, uh, that would do just fine. Excellent. Well, I mean, it needs no, uh, we've already spoken a lot about Zelda, so we don't need to carry on with that and the reason why. Um, Also, it's a safe haven within the game, so there are no monsters. So I think you'll be totally fine. Um, You'll be fine to play all these games that you've chosen, including this next one, which is uh, a game I love personally as well, very dearly. Um, It was developed by... I've said it numerous times now, but this developer has appeared on this show so many times. They are just a symbol of quality within video games right now. And that's Intelligent Systems, published by Nintendo. It released all the way back in 2001 in North America for the Game Boy Advance. It's the first in the series, Advance Wars. Jake, please tell me why the second game that you're going to be taking with you to your lovely town in Breath of the Wild is Advance Wars. I love this game. Um, <laughs> I mean, I if you were to count the hours, it was a toss-up between this one and uh, Advance Wars DS, the first one on, on the DS. Yeah. Um, they're both fantastic. They're both equally fantastic. But the first one was just so pure and so great. Um, it's an endless game, and that's why you would want this game uh, in a place like that where you have endless time to play video games. Like, you you can't master it. Like, it's it's challenging it's deep. Um, some of my favorite maps are actually some of the smallest where it's just pure tactics. It's like not this massive map where you're moving 35 units around and doing all this stuff. It's really just like really snappy and fast moving and it's very tactical and it's endlessly replayable. And it's got, you know, I mean, after a while, any you know, any attuned, uh, advanced wars players knows that you turn off all the animations and you speed everything up. Um, so it's just, you know, rapid fire, just boom, 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 boom. His five moves, shit, okay. You know, adjust, recalculate, and and hit back. Uh, it's, I think, just, you know, one of the most perfect sort of strategy games of all time. And I love the characters. I love the music. I love the whole interface. I love the UI. I love everything about it. And it's it's just easily one of my favorite games of all time. Um, and you know, every couple of years I'll go back and play it a bit and I'll just get completely hooked again and just start playing the whole thing all over again. I love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. <laughs> I don't even know what I could add to that. Really? Um, <laughs> I'm a huge fan of the series as well, as well as fire emblem, both intelligent systems, IPs that just go hand in hand for me. Um, Advance Wars as well. Unfortunately, in recent years, maybe not so much enthusiasm behind that series. I don't know for whatever reason, other than Fire Emblem is doing really well right now. Fire Emblem is blowing up. And I was never a big Fire Emblem guy. Like, I always wanted to get into it and and love it the way that I do with Advance Wars. And I just never... 
it never hit the same. Uh, is it the fantasy type of setting, or is it just the game's play? Part of it. I'm not as into the fantasy stuff as I am. I mean, it's not like I'm super into cutesy war stuff either. I don't know why, but I think they chose that aesthetic. They nailed it. They owned it, and it works really well. I think it's the. I feel like Fire Emblem because you kind of get attached to the characters, and you. Um, there tend to be kind of bigger fights and you're a little bit more emotionally attached to each character. And so you're not as, it's not as purely tactical. Like you kind of start making other emotions and stuff in there. And I think that's why some people love it so much. And I totally get it. Like I totally understand, but the, the genericness of these endless little stream of soldiers, like it's, it's purely tactical in advanced wars. Um, and it, 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 even though mechanically they're very similar, um, they just have a really different feeling to me, and I, okay. I would just much much rather play Advance Wars. And I'm dying that they aren't making them anymore. They just, mm. I because it know. is one of those things. It is funny you said that because it it, it is a game with main characters. Yeah, um, Fire Emblem has so many characters, but you do get attached to certain characters that you can pick. But in Advance Wars, you are forced to have the like the commanding officers and the sort of main units but they can't die and they stick around for story reasons and all that kind of stuff they have special powers but it is that very it is purely tactical you get 18 different types of units and you sort of get used to what works against what and then it is specifically more about the tactics and 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 defeating your enemy instead of maybe making all your units out alive by cheesing out the ai or something like that like you can right. do in fire Emblem. yeah it's it's weird too because like if i were to do a runner-up for turn-based strategy uh the, the original shining force and shining force 2 are super high on my list as well yeah uh, and, and they are more about the unique characters and i'm not sure what about those is that one moves at a pretty steppy pace too um I don't know why. I, I really love the Shining Force. So that's not on my list, so I'm cheating right now. But <laughs> well, you can't take it, but you can you can mention it, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, Advance Wars, as it moved on throughout the series, we had a few games on the Game Boy Advance. We had some of the games on the DS, of course, uh, and some of the most underrated DS games as well, like uh, Dark Moon Ruin. I forget the full. They had two different titles. The second DS Days game, of Ruin. Days, Days of, of Ruin, Ruin. Yeah. Days of Ruin, which was a, an awesome game, like a Mad Max style, um, fire uh, Advance Wars, so great. Um, but we also had like Battalion Wars on the Wii. I don't know if you played those games either. I didn't. No. They were like, I don't know if they were developed by Intelligent Systems, but they were. They like, weren't. They were developed in England, actually. They were done really? by. Um, oh boy, I forget the name of the developer now. But the, yeah, they were. They were a UK team. But we, yeah, so we have had sort of console versions of Advance Wars, but they were maybe not so great, didn't have that intelligent systems touch. Um, they didn't have the magic, no. Do, do you see Advance Wars coming back at any time? I mean, if we were talking maybe three years ago, four years ago, before Fire Emblem Awakening came out, I think a lot of people had been saying the same thing about Fire Emblem. So who knows? Or I, do I don't think- know. I, yeah, I. I could go on, uh, but the I do miss it, and I think that the Switch would be a perfect uh, platform to reinvent it. So here's hoping. I mean, I would love to see them do sort of a rebirth on that and and reboot it because it really is a fantastic franchise. The um, 
Days of Ruin was the only one that I really it didn't really appeal to me. It was way oh, more somber. I really like that one. <laughs> it was way more why. somber, and it was yeah. way more you know uh, funny uh, to get into this. But I mean, as you know, that Advance Wars was a huge inspiration for uh, for my first indie title, The Skulls of the Shogun. Yeah. And and I actually took a lot of negative lessons away from from Days of Ruin. Like when I I actually quit playing, it was the only one I didn't finish, and I quit playing at a point where I was in this giant map. And I was in a complete standstill. It was just a hamburger grind. And like neither me or my opponent could get any ground. And it was just this constant grind of hamburger. And there was no like foreseeable um, exit strategy. Like we were just stuck in this horrible trench warfare of, you know. And and I was like, this is this can't happen. Like this is you gotta find a way out. That's actually what forced the uh, the finite resources and skills of the shogun to force an end game at some point because I, I just got, it was like this long battle and I was so invested boring. in it. And I was, yeah. I was just like, God, this is just going nowhere. Like I know what a commander must feel like now in their trench warfare and they're just like sending these dudes to die and they're like not making a single inch or they're making an inch <laughs> and then they lose it the next day. Um, yeah. Also, I, just, I imagine this was maybe around the time where you were, you did that string of games that were all that kind of gritty Somber yeah, because it was it was when well. I was at um, I was at EA at the time, um, and I was just I love the art direction of the of the first um, well the, the the first two on uh, on a, on DS or on GBA, and then the the first DS one, Advance yeah. Wars uh, DS, which so bright, I remember so being colorful. I remember being camping, and I remember I brought that with me, um, and I was like everyone was sleeping, and I couldn't stop playing because that fucking game. Like when you're in a good battle, like you can't. You're like one more, just one more, like just one more, like one more round, one more round, and I stopped and I looked at my time and I was like, well over a hundred hours into it, and I was like, wow, like talk about you know entertainment value per dollar, like this game is really, uh, really doing it for me. <laughs> you know, I spent like thirty bucks out <laughs> or whatever, and like one hundred twenty hours in, I'm like, yeah, well, I obviously you like this game and uh, yeah. you're really getting your money's worth and uh, and everybody's happy. Like it was such a beautiful little thing. Uh, you flip it open, the happy music starts going, the little birds are flying on the screen, and I just, oh man, I love it, love it. So, the I, I think it, we would uh, regret to mention that there is that indie game that is coming to the Nintendo Switch that seems to be like an Advance Wars spiritual successor. Do you know about that? I feel like I saw a little article about it somewhere. I mean, it looks like more like a clone than a yeah like it yeah. looks a lot like advanced wars like i feel it's, like skulls of the shogun owes a lot to advanced wars but it's like it's definitely you know running off in its own direction uh so that made, one looks like the same game yeah it's made by the guys who made uh, uh what's it called uh star uh, not stodgy valley sorry and uh starbound starbounds the sort of terraria minecraft space clone thing so Maybe they take their ideas from other games and sort of put their own spin on it, but it definitely does look like just Advance Wars. It, I mean, it's it's hyper. You know, if you want to call yeah. it inspired, I guess you can. Uh, it's very inspired by Advance Wars, which maybe is a great thing. I don't know. I haven't played it yet. Um, you know, I, I have no idea what it's all about. I only saw a quick – like I think I must have seen a video because I was like, wow, even the movement and like yeah, everything think- is like literally like exactly like Advance Wars. Will you play it just to get that sort of Advance Wars kick anyway? 
Uh, probably not. <laughs> advanced was pure. That that's There's it. only Just... one advanced was. I mean, I can't even get into Fire Emblem, so I, I doubt that game has a chance to to hook me. But <laughs> I mean, I'll keep an eye on it for sure. I just, and, you know, I'm de- I'm also desperate for more Advance Wars. It's been so long. Yeah, well, um, I mean, you're gonna get your kick from somewhere, right? Yeah. Do the do the XCOM games not take your fancy in any way? I I mean, they're um, a little like it, it, but not so much. It's 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 sad for me to admit that I never played the first one, and uh, the new ones just did not grab me. They're too slow. I think that's why I love Advance Wars too, because when you turn off all the advan- all the animations and stuff. And you start just banging down stuff, uh, especially on the smaller maps where you can't have that many units. It moves at a really quick pace, and that is much easier for me to stay engaged with than the really kind of slow, you know, the animations and they're kind of clunky and the dudes are running around and like everything takes a long time. Like I just, I just completely run out of patience. Um, that being said, there was a GBA XCOM sort of weird spinoff, uh, isometric. Uh, what the hell was it called? I can't remember. I played it when I was at Sega, and it was like after Advance Wars. There was like a dry period between the two Advance Wars, or something around that time. Um, and I played the shit out of that. And it was it was technically an XCOM game. It was an XCOM GBA game um, where you were fighting these these aliens, um, and it was really really well done. I really liked that. That was the only one I've ever played, though. Okay, I don't know about that, so I will have to have a look into it maybe and see if I can dig it up. Um, it was done by Julian. Uh, Oh God, I'm totally spacing his name. He's a he's kind of a god of the the strategy game stuff. Not Julian Rignall. Uh, oh boy, I forget. <laughs> You'll see his name. You're like, oh yeah, he's a famous guy. But that was one of his one of the the games that really brought his name to my attention. And uh, huge fan of that game, which I can't remember the name of. So obviously, I'm really smart. <laughs> well, we're gonna move on to uh, something else now, which. I have no idea what I'm going to find for a musical piece for this. I don't even think it technically counts as a game. Uh, it's something yeah. I've, heard, I've heard you talk about before on uh, other podcasts, like the 8-4 Play podcast. Um, so, I mean, I don't know anything about it, but the idea The music's of really it, good. The music is really good. So there really is music good. for it. So there yes. is music. Okay, so I, I'm okay then. I'm I'm totally fine. I don't have to scour the internet for something that is randomly associated with it. So that's pretty good. <laughs> so why don't we listen to some of that music? And then let's dive straight into this game that is not a game. That's on Jake's list. Um, I've never experienced it, but the 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 words 
that combine to make the title entice me so, so greatly. Um, I explore Google Maps and Street View and City View so much in my spare time, just essentially getting for a feel for either where I live or where I'm going to go on trips and um, just figuring stuff out, that this is something I can imagine is just amazing. Um, and that is Google Earth VR. Now, Jake, I have not jumped onto the VR bandwagon. It's something I have experienced in the past with the very early uh, sort of um, Oculus Rift prototypes, but I've not tried the Vive. I've not tried the PlayStation VR. I've not tried the the retail release of the Oculus either. Um, but I know dude, you're you're big dude, into your VR, right? Dude, dude, <laughs> dude. You need to you need to fix that immediately. <laughs> so so explain to me then why out of all the VR things that you've been using and stuff that Google Earth VR makes it on the spot uh, to replace a video game essentially. Let me start by saying two things. Uh, first of all, uh, until very recently, uh, I would say right before I actually got my hands on uh, Zelda, um, if you were to ask me what the pinnacle of human society was and the greatest thing that human minds had ever concocted and come together to create, I would say it's Google Earth VR. Um, <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's you know how the world of Zelda is really big and it's really interesting. You can go lots of places and it seems like you'll never run out of stuff to go see and do. Yeah. Well, times that by 10,000 or maybe 100,000. <laughs> I mean, it turns out the whole planet is a really fucking cool place to go to. Like <laughs> you can go anywhere and it looks, you know, I mean, there's a certain fidelity level. There's a threshold, but you get too close to Earth and yeah. the fidelity sort of breaks down a bit, uh, just like on, you know, on regular Google Earth. But if you're 100 meters in the sky or 200 meters in the sky, it's basically photorealistic and you can go anywhere on the planet and you can look at the architecture. You can look at the layout of the city. They've done this really amazing thing where – there's two modes, basically. There's map mode where you're sort of like – imagine you're standing. It's a room scale experience on Vive. If you're standing and you're looking at the map, like you're looking at – like you're at a museum and you're like staring at this map that's on the wall. Um, and, you know, if, if, you, if any of the listeners haven't ever seen Google Earth, uh, it, in its own right, it's an amazing thing that you could spend, you know, endless time screwing around with. Um, so it's it's created by the satellite data. So everything's sort of 3D. They have these algorithms that help them, you know, generate 3D map data based on uh, the satellites kind of, you know, scanning over all this stuff. So everything's yeah. sort of built out. Um, and it's – the map view has got the names of the maps and stuff. It looks kind of like what you would expect from, from Google Maps. Um, you know, it's – or Google Earth, uh, you know, you're looking at the names of the streets and the names of the neighborhoods and the names of the cities and stuff. And as you zoom out, the names of the countries, things like that. Um, the other mode is doesn't really have a name. I call it train set mode because it's basically turns the entire planet into a giant fucking diorama. And you're walking around it like it's a giant train set. And the genius thing they did was the you can fly like basically you're a God, you're a disembodied spirit and you can just fly anywhere. And the closer you come down to earth, the smaller you get until you actually land your feet on earth and you're, you're standing there at a human scale and everything to your eyes, the way that, you know, that they, they use the distance between your eyes, everything is scaled one to one. And you're like looking up at buildings and you're standing in front of your childhood home 
or you're at your elementary school that you haven't been to in 20 years. And you're like, I mean, at this point, definitely the fidelity falls apart and I'm really looking forward to it getting bigger and better. But as you fly into the air, say you're 300 meters into the air, you feel like you're about a 300 meter tall human or God or whatever the hell you want to call it. Um, and so all of a sudden you get – it's like this really weird sort of detached sort of observant – like you you feel like a God. You feel like you've died and you're just sort of like moving around the planet like astral projecting and you can go anywhere and you're like walking through this beautiful canyon. You're like, hey, the Grand Canyon and then you fucking just go there. And you're 500 feet tall and you're walking through the Grand Canyon as this giant, this disembodied spirit. And you're looking at everything and you grab the sun and you move it till it's dusk and like the sunset's going down and everything's lit up all perfect and the music's fantastic. And that reminds you uh, you've never been to Paris and you just go to Paris and you walk around Paris and you let it all load in. Like it takes a while to load some of the stuff in. Not a long time, but like long enough. You kind of have to kind of walk around a little bit, let it kind of all pop in. And then you're in Paris and you're walking around and you can see the whole city and you can see where everything is relative to its, you know, to other things. You can get down tiny and look up at the Eiffel Tower and get a really good idea for how big it is. And then you can become a 600 foot tall giant and go stand on the top of the Eiffel Tower and, <laughs> and look around at all of Paris and look at the rolling hills in the distance and see some other town and just kind of like will yourself to this other place and – you know the magic of like a diorama? Like when you're a little kid, you're like fascinated with train sets and stuff because it's like this little world. And like you can get down and look at everything. And when you get to that fidelity at that level of about, you know, a couple hundred feet up and you're looking at this entire city and like every building and you can move around freely and just poke your head into everything. Like it is endlessly fascinating. And like you cannot do it all. Like there is literally no way you can go to every city on the planet and look in every window. It just – it's phenomenal. Like I literally think if I could bring one piece of software with me, it would probably just be that because you can just see the whole planet. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense either. Like I just, <laughs> I was sitting around the house one night a couple weeks ago and I was like, you know what? I've never been to South America. I wonder what it's like. And I just, I met this guy randomly, this, this teacher who uh, is from Brazil and he was in Kyoto and I forget even who introduced him to me, but he came by the studio and, and met me and I was like talking about teaching these students in Brazil game stuff he told me the name of his town and I remembered it and I just went there and I just flew out to the countryside and I just like went down to eye level to like human level and just started walking around this neighborhood in rural Brazil. And I'm looking at the architecture and I'm looking at the kinds of trees and stuff. And I'm just like, this is fucking crazy. Like this is the holodeck. This is the future. Like this is the matrix. Like this is so next generation that it, you know, it doesn't make sense. And I, I, I weep for the people who haven't seen it and they're like, oh, I don't know about VR. I'm like, dude, like fucking <laughs> sell your car, sell your firstborn, sell whatever you got to sell to find the 800 bucks to get a five and, and Google Earth is free. So it's like a little cherry on top. Just fucking make it happen and your life will never be the same. My mom, I, she came to Japan to visit. I put it on her head. She flipped out for about five minutes. She took it off and she was in tears. She was like, this is – the most amazing thing I've ever seen in my life. I'm like, yeah, it's, this is the future. Like we live in the fucking future. Like regardless of the world, the state of affairs in the world right now, this is the future we were promised and fucking it's mine. And I love it. And I, it's why it's on my top 
a list of, of all things here that I would that I would take with me as a digital entertainment uh, stuck in my limbo of this digital island that you're going to throw me <laughs> on. Well, that means you can escape, essentially. Um, maybe not physically, but you mentally can always escape from this uh, island anyway. Um, but... This is something I really, really want to try. I am someone who is absolutely fascinated by map data anyway. And I remember even back a few years ago when the the we had like the weather channel and you could like zoom out of the earth and you could see what the weather and the time was like in lots of different other countries. And you could like zoom in a little bit and you could see like the cities and it was a really primitive version of like a, a, a 3D model of earth. And even that fascinated me. So... Like I'm, I'm in a week today. I'm moving house. I'm moving to a different part. I'm going back to a, a part of Japan I already lived in, um, but a, a different part of the city. And I was, I had never been to that part of the city before, so I was super interested to see what was around. Booted up Google uh, Maps straight away and just walked down the street, checked out all the shops, found everything that I needed to know. Like, where's my, where's hard off? Where is Kokoichibanya? Like, where are all the things I need to know about? And just like walking up and down the street, that kind of thing absolutely fascinates me. So I don't even this, think this I'm, is, this is that times a million. You know, I, I, I know. You, and I just, you know, when I'm you're like, flying, oh. you know, when you're flying and like you're on a long flight, and you're looking at the clouds, or whatever. And then you kind of start coming in on the airport and you're like circling in Yeah. and you're maybe, oh. you know, I don't know, like maybe a kilometer up in the air, maybe not even that, maybe half a kilometer up in the air. And you're starting to be able to see individual cars, individual houses and stuff. And you're just like, fuck, man, I wish I was a bird and I wish I could fly. <laughs> like I want to get an airplane license just so I could fly around <laughs> and just look at the world. But I would never be able to have that much gas or that much money or like that much time or like, you know, no. Now you do, and it's as much as you want, and you can go anywhere, and you can just stay there and just hang out. <sighs> like I, my favorite thing to do in Tokyo, one of my favorite things to do is to go to the Mori Art Gallery, which is in the uh, the Mori Tower building, the the Robungi Hills building. Yeah. Um, and the the top floor up there, you can go up to the ceiling, like up to the roof, and like watch the whole city. But there's like a really amazing. Uh, observation deck i think it's like the 55th floor or something and so the, this whole thing is kind of a it loops around the whole uh tower and you can just like see tokyo which is in its own right is the this most the one in shinjuku it's in Rapungi. okay so i really like going to the you know the the metropolitan government building in shinjuku I've heard of that. I've never actually been up there. I'm and sure it's the same thing. Like you're seeing yeah, it's, it's, to the it's, horizon. Yeah. It's like a sea of humanity that yeah. just doesn't make any sense. Like really, yeah, the city goes you can see just everything. forever. And you're like, wow, like what would happen if everybody here flushed their toilets at once? Like it would be the end of the world. Like I just, it's so crazy <laughs> to see it from there. So I love going up there. I always go up there. Like every time I get a chance, if I go to Tokyo and I've got even a couple free hours, I'll go to there. Also the Mori art gallery there is always like a world-class art gallery. Like whatever they're showing, fuck it, just go see it. It's going to be amazing. Um, but in Google Earth VR, I'll go in and I'll just sit on top of that building as like the 700 foot tall giant. And I'll just sit there and listen to the city sounds and like look around and you're like, I could just sit here for so long. Like, how do I talk myself <laughs> out of doing this? Or like, well, maybe I'll go, you know, back to my hometown and like go fly into my junior high school and like get up. Oh, and like, fly, I want to do this so badly. I want yeah, to do this so badly. It will change. I mean, I don't, I don't see how you could spend 20 minutes with, with Google Earth VR and not become a complete VR believer and say, wow, this is the future that I was promised uh, in Star Trek. And it's see, cool. This is, that is the kind of experiences that, I've always thought VR was more 
geared towards anyway. I never really thought it was... I didn't think it could ever work for video games uh, and give, like, a good experience. But it, there was the potential there for stuff like that. Um, whether it be, like, exploring cities overhead or just experiencing lots of different things, like, out of a gameplay environment. Um... I want to try. I want to try it so badly. I, I ever since I heard you talk about it on eight four like a couple of months ago, like it just sounds so appealing and and just something that would definitely entice me to buy a VR. So I'm probably going to be in Kyoto at some point. Jake, please show me. <laughs> Dude, we've we've shown so many people. Um, we were in Famitsu a couple weeks ago. Uh, when Galaxy finally launched in Japan, it was quite the uh, ordeal getting going here in Japan. But we finally launched in Japan, and Famitsu came down and did an interview with us, and and kind of like met the whole team, and um, did a big interview with me about sort of how the studio got going, and like sort of my you know ideals as a game designer and stuff like that. And I'm flipping out about Google Earth. I'm like telling them all about it and stuff, and they're kind of like, huh. And I was like, wait a minute, have either of you guys actually seen it? And they're like, nope. And I took them upstairs and the photographer, uh, all three of them, and they all flew to their houses that they grew up in. <laughs> and, you know, they came out of it and they're just looking at me with this weird blank stare, just like that was incredible. That was like so much more than I ever could have, you know, like felt or assumed or anything. And it's funny because you're in the room with them and you can see what they're looking at. Right. So you're seeing he's flying around the city and you can see the geo of the, of the buildings and stuff like that. And it just looks like, it looks like Google earth, you know, it looks like Google earth on a computer. You're like, like, what's the big deal? I don't, I don't understand. And then you put it on and you're like, wow, I'm 500 feet tall and I'm like in this invisible infinity plane and I can go anywhere in the world. Like I'm a fucking God. Like I literally am God. And I've said this a couple times to a couple different friends. I may have even said it on the podcast, but like I was doing it so much for a while there that your brain starts like adapting to your new like tool set or whatever you want to call it. And so I, I'm limbs. Not, yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not walking around with my body. I'm flying, which is really handy. It turns out it's really easy. And I'm changing my scale at will between, you know, six foot tall human and 700 foot tall, you know, God. And I'm just flying around and like, you're just willing yourself to anywhere on the planet and you're there immediately and you're looking at stuff and you're like bigger and smaller. And sometimes you just zoom out all the way and you know, you're looking at the whole planet and the music is just like this beautiful kind of like really chill music, but it's like super just like languid and just like dreamy. And you're like, I, this is just too much, man. It's so fucking cool. I don't know. Like it, it, you got to see it. You got to see that scale. Yeah. You understand oh. what it feels like it's impossible to put into words, and it's impossible to watch even someone on a two D screen and have any comprehension until the moment you put it on. You're like, "What the shit? This is crazy." I feel like my life is not going to be complete until I do it's experience not. this. It's not. It's not. Trust me. You'll put it on once. You're like, all right, I'm getting this in my life. Uh, I got to run over. This is happening. Okay. So, uh, okay. I'm going to focus in some sense to make sure that this happens to me at some point within the next, before the end of the year, without having to shout maybe $800 to do so. Especially here in Japan where everything is completely overpriced. Um but I will allow it. It's not a, technically a game, but it comes on game hardware. So you have fudged the technicalities, and I will totally allow this such 
amazing piece of software to be taken with you. And you're probably the only person who kind of escapes from the island um, quite quite literally into the real world. <laughs> so congrats. <laughs> but I think it's about time now we move on to your next game. Uh, and we're going back now. Um, it's one of the older games on your list. And we're going back to less astounding worlds and more sci-fi alien worlds instead. So why don't we listen to some really iconic music from this next game. And let's dive straight into it. So the next game on Jake's list, we're, we're taking away from the real world and we're going into more science fiction worlds now with one of the most recognizable science fiction characters of recent gaming times, um, developed by Bungie and released back in November of 2001 for the original Xbox. It later came to PC, Xbox 360 and Xbox One as well, um, directed by Jason Jones and published by Microsoft. It's the military science fiction first-person shooter featuring Master Chief, Halo Combat Evolved. Jake, why is Halo going with you? Man, this is game. This is just one of those games that you know altered a, a trajectory in my life. Um, this, and I'm going to admit it right here, John. Uh, I owe this to John Riccardi. Uh, the original Xbox came out. We were living in Japan at the time. I was at Sega. Um, I had no interest in it. It was like this big, weird, blocky-looking thing. And uh, the American game, the, the Western game renaissance hadn't really kicked in yet for me yet. I was still very passionate about only Japanese games. Um, and uh, the Xbox came out, it launched. I played a little bit of it at TGS, and I was just like, I don't know, this is weird. Um, the controls were inverted, so I wasn't able to like kind of really feel it too much. Um, and I put it down, and, I, and then I just didn't even think about it again. And uh, John Riccardi from 8.4 was like, dude, you got to you gotta play this Halo game. And I was like, I don't know, dude. I tried it at TGS. Didn't catch my attention at all. I don't give a shit. He's like, I know you and I know what you like and you need to play this game. And I'm coming over and I'm fucking bringing the entire Xbox and Halo in a shopping bag. And I'm leaving it at your house and you're going to play it next week. That's that's how it's going down. And I was like, well, wow. If he, you know, <laughs> if he believes in it that much, I guess I should I should give it a spin. And I gave it a proper, you know, once over, and it just became my favorite FPS of all time. Um, and there was a long span there where uh, it was a fantastic game. I mean, it was like also one of the best like launch titles of all time. Uh, kudos to everybody who made that happen. Such a great game, such an amazing experience, so infinitely replayable. Um, and that's what happened. Uh, I was like, wow, Xbox is fantastic. And like, you know, games of this caliber are going to be banging out all the time, late, you know, from now on. So 
really looking forward to the next one. Uh, and there was no next game for a long time. <laughs> and so I just played more Halo. And like I would just play more Halo and play more Halo. And me and my, my best friend Yamachan, this Japanese guy in Tokyo, we would just get together and, you know, we'd go out clubbing or whatever. We'd come back late at night. We'd be all fucked up. And we would just turn on Legendary and we'd go into two-player and just play and play and play and play and play and never stop playing. And it never got boring. Like the combat is so hard and the AI is so great and the teamwork is so fantastic. And, you know, the unpredictability of the enemies and sort of like there is no proper path through some of those bigger, harder battles. Like you've got to just fight and you've got to just try and you've got to just, you know, live by your instincts and get ballsy. And, you know, you're in the middle of this amazing firefight and you run out of bullets and you're just like, you can't hesitate. You've got to rush in when his shields are down and punch him in the fucking face. And you're just like, dude, that was amazing. Like why are no other games like this? Um, and I played hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours. I mean, I think if you were to look at my, my overall record log of all the games I've ever played, I probably put more hours into the original Halo than anything else. Um, and in any game ever, I think so. I think so. Probably. Yeah. Cause there was a stretch of a couple years there where like, that's really all I was playing. I was just, I would just play it over and over. I mean, I was I was waiting for other stuff. I was like, God, oh, you know, I want I want Halo Two. I want you know, I want other games of this caliber. And there was just nothing that could compare to it in terms of how tight it was, how bulletproof it was, how engaging the combat was, um, and how fun it was to play co-op. It was just like so much fun to make a plan and be like pinned down and begging for help. And um, we got to the part to the point where uh, me and my buddy Dan, when I moved to LA, Dan Jevons, uh, we were playing on legendary this is before the skulls and stuff all came out with like halo 3 and things like that we would play on legendary co-op where we would start over if if either of us died and you know that just puts the such a different slant on it like it becomes so intense and so real and every bullet counts and every hit counts and you've got to communicate like crazy with each other when you're going to use something as dangerous as a grenade which can end everything right away um and we, we, you know, we didn't finish the whole game that way, but we, we got through, you know, more than half of it, and it was just so engaging, like it was so fucking deep and like tense, and these battles would be so just brutal and hard, and you would fail, and like fuck, and you'd start over, and you get back to this big battle, and you have this just incredible nervousness. I mean, I felt like I was a pro athlete, like going out in the field, like you know, for the Super Bowl or something. Like it was just so intense, and like there, you know, there's no safe spots, there's nowhere, there's no safe real strategy for some of those bigger battles. You got to just stay 110% alert every moment, and like understand where the movement is at, and like even now, I can't think of many games that that just brought it all home and just delivered such a tight, perfect package. And just like really like my love of engaging AI came from that game, like, you know, unpredictable and just, you know, it's a fight, it's a real fight. And, you know, you've just got to use every advantage that, that possibly comes your way. And, you know, you only barely get by with it. With a, you know, to very scrape your teeth, and like right when you think you're done, you put your guard down for a second. You turn around, some dude is running at you, punches you in the face, sends you flying, and it's just game over. And you're like, oh my god, <laughs> that fucking guy just totally fucking got me. Like he got me. He owned me. That was amazing. It was so great. Even though I have to start all over now. Well. Um, yeah, you are going to a deserted island, though. Is this going to be a game you're going to be okay with playing by yourself repeatedly? I know you've said that you liked playing it repeatedly and uh, getting to a point where if you die, you'd start again. But that was kind of with a friend. There was that social aspect to it. Yeah, are you okay doing I mean, that by I, yourself? 
I still, I mean, I didn't have a friend around every Friday night, so I, I did play a lot of it by myself. I mean, of course, I would prefer to play a two-player. Um, and if I were to go two-player, I'd have to throw in the original Street Fighter in here somewhere, too, Street Fighter 2. Uh, but uh, single-player, I, I would I would probably not. Um, God, that, that opens up a whole other can of worms. Like, would you not want to just master Street Fighter 5 or Virtual Fighter 5? <laughs> that would be on my list, too. I would have to bump something. I'm sorry. I'm all over the place. Just thinking <laughs> about the, the ramifications of actually sitting on a desert island with only a handful of games for all time. Um, <laughs> only now is it hitting you. I know yeah. you I know you thought about these games quite late, <laughs> but <laughs> only now is it hitting you. Um, which is interesting because uh, we should move on to your next choice then. And I'm wondering if um, you would bump this game instead for another game because i imagine you're very well versed in this next game already and um i i think we should listen to some excellent music and we'll find out why Next game on your list, Jake, I think makes you I have to go back and double check this, but I do believe you are the first game developer to choose their own game to take with them. We've had like Derek Yu, he had enough of talking about Spelunky, we've had like William Pugh, he had no want to think about um <laughs> the Stanley Stanley Parable. Um but the next game on your list is a game that was developed uh, by a studio you might know called 17-Bit, and it was published by Microsoft. <laughs> um, it released originally back on January 30th of 2013 and has been released on a whole host of platforms since. Uh, PC, Xbox 360, iOS, uh, the Oya, PlayStation 4. Um, and it's a game all about uh, General uh, Akimoto, and he uh, is dead. But he's, he doesn't like waiting around um, to be judged. So he sort of decides to do things his own way in a game that is very inspired by Advance Wars. It's the turn-based tactics game, Skulls of the Shogun. Jake, why is this going with you? <laughs> so here's the thing. When you're a young indie developer and you are given the keys to make your own game, uh, you... And you're not thinking at all about market share or any of the stuff like, you know, market trends, any of the intelligent things that an intelligent seasoned indie developer would do. Uh, it was our first it was our first disco and uh, I wanted to make my perfect game. So that's I think I mean, Skulls, I'm very, very proud of it. Um, I still think it holds up. And it was literally engineered to match my DNA of what my definition of like a perfect game would be. So I think if you look at it through that lens, it's not 
as weird. I mean, it feels narcissistic to, to say I would bring my own game with me, but if you think about it, if you were given the opportunity to sit down and have a really talented crew and make your perfect endless game, that it would be one of the games you would want to bring with you. Um, it's very much uh, inspired by my love of the Advance Wars stuff and the faster-paced strategy games. Um, I wanted to bring in physics to allow for some of the environmental hazards and the environmental um, use and some sort of really physical tactics, which is never a part of the tactics games. They're always, you know, kind of very grid-based and very uh, very binary. Yeah. This one allowed for a lot of fuzziness, you know, like you would just kind of barely get into range. You could move again with whatever movement points you had left over, which has also, you know, been done in a handful of other games. But, you know, I do think Skulls of the Shogun is a very unique title. Um, there's not another game like it, really, that I can think of. Um, and I think of it like chess. Like I think of it like I mean, you look at a chess game, and it's the same board every time, and you've got a handful of dudes, and um, and it'll, it's still it allows for infinite variability. Um, I also love uh, American football, and I love watching football, and I love how every play could dynamically change the pace of the of the battle against your opponent. Um, and you kind of have to make some quick decisions and then you sort of go back up and you, you know, you, you make the best of it over this very short amount of time. And so it was very inspired by kind of football and advance wars and, and some of the, the combat in Halo too, even just like just having intelligent enemies that, um, you know, make unpredictable decisions sometimes and you don't have any hundred percent, uh, you know, plan that's going to work. I mean, I, I designed, you know, majority of the maps, like a lot of the maps and the ones that I would do, uh, I mean, I worked on all of the maps because I was the artist. And so even the ones that other people did, I would like go in and tweak and tune and like play and play and play and play and like move a tree, like two pixels this way. And, yeah, you know, just tweak the shit out of it. And so every battle, I mean, my favorite battles were the ones that, um, were the most sort of open-ended and there was no over overwhelming strategy of how to complete it. Like you kind of just had to sort of let the tides of battle take you and, and sort of adapt and push here and hold here and, and strike now and be really bold and be like, all right, I, I think I'm going to go for it. Like, fuck it. I'm going to go for the other general. Like I'm going to, I'm going to try to hold this front. I'm going to keep these guys distracted and I'm going to pave my way down this main strip here. And then I'm going to fucking get really ballsy and I'm going to put everything on the line you know, 30 minutes in and I'm going to, I'm going to go for this assassination on his, on his Shogun. Who's, you know, that's how you win the game. And, uh, I mean, I played hundreds of hours of this game, I guess, you know, actually more than Halo. If you put it into retrospect, I probably put more time into this game than, than any other game. Yeah. I imagine um, that goes without saying though. So <laughs> yeah. Cause you're just playing it and testing it. And like, you're just making these maps as like open-ended and as, as deep and layered as possible. And that kind of layer approach really only comes in after like hundreds of hours of tuning these things you know it's like these little tiny subtleties and playing with different people and um you know just over and over and over and over and it, it's still a complete rush for me like i still i go back i was like teaching my kids how to play it now uh which is really cool and and i'm just like god i fucking love this game like i really love <laughs> i guess it's not surprising at all i mean i literally was like the lead designer on it and i did all the art and the music and stuff or not the music the uh, but you know a lot of the game design and and it's, um, it's, it's just kind of funny, actually, because uh, you said something that has uh, I've never really thought about before. And that is 
quite honestly, if you were developing, if you could develop your own game and you had the means to do so, you would make a game that was perfect you to you, right? The, yeah. Inspired by genres you like, with an art style you like, with music you like. Um, yeah, you might get tired of playing it while you're developing it and stuff, but essentially you are crafting your own perfect game. So it makes entire sense to then choose that game to play forever, right? And it's not, it's not, like if it was a like a platformer or like, you know, something that's a lot more linear, I think it would be a lot easier to sort of get really bored of it and be like, fuck, I just can't even, like you're a tester, you know how it is. Like when you're testing the same thing, it can get real old. But real I look old. at this, I look at this like, like I look at like the the football, like American football, like it's it's a fucking 100 yard field. You got, you know, guys on both sides. You're, you're evenly matched up. Um, and it should play out, you know, very similarly, but it never does. Like every game has its own drama, has its own pace. You know, the the cadence of things kind of really gets switched up and the intensity, you know, there's these really intense moments. And we just have a whole game full of a whole bunch of different maps that all have their own sort of, you know, character and their own sort of challenges and stuff like that. And you know, I found that no matter how many times I played these things, they, you know, within a couple turns, they're all radically going in different directions. And uh, you know, every game was its own game. Like every game has its own challenges and its own strategies. And sometimes you win, and sometimes you lose, and sometimes you almost lose, and then you come back to win. And you know, you would have these amazing hail mary moments where you just kind of throw everything on the line, and you're like, "Fuck it!" Like I'm going for it. Like this is my only chance of survival. Is like this one crazy maneuver. And like you, you get up. And and it works 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 and then you win and you're like oh my god I was like I was so dead like I had five guys left and he had thirty and you're still able to come back and I mean this was so much driven by you know loving Advance Wars and loving some of these other games and playing the shit out of them but taking a really comprehensive list of all the stuff that I didn't like all the things that didn't work for me amazingly like you know. There was a point in like an Advance Wars game or a lot of strategy games where you're like, well, the tide is sort of turned and like he's going to just chip away at me until my inevitable end now. Like there's no there's no Hail Marys in a lot of those games. And the way this is structured where you can kind of force a guy up against a cliff and even if you only got a couple guys, if you all go at him and try you know push him back even just a little bit per guy, you could shove him off the cliff for an instant win. And so there's always a way out. There's always like something radical you can do to kind of – not always, but a lot of times. There's something you can do to to take that crazy chance and and possibly even the odds. And like there's a real – high that comes with that a real thrill of like holy shit like i can't believe i pulled that off that was amazing you know and there's like this this real just like apprehension and sort of tension in in just making some of these big decisions and you're like well you know i gotta do something or i'm gonna die so i'm gonna do something crazy and uh i really think that the that this game uh you know all of us just just playing the shit out of it and just spending so much time with it um we really pulled that off and that was, that was the goal. And so I'm just so proud of it and I'm so happy with it. And I, and I, you know, we designed it within our spec. We designed it within our range, within our budget. I mean, sure it was completely delayed and it took way longer to finish than we ever thought it would. Um, but the upside was that we did polish the living shit out of it and it really stands up as much as I, you know, could hope. And so even when I go back now and play it, I'm like, huh, how am I not bored of this game? Like, how am I still having so much fun? It's like, well, I guess you did. 
technically, literally, fucking physically engineer it to be your perfect game. So it's not <laughs> it's not that weird. Do you reckon you've made your perfect deserted island game then? Because as you said, if it was like a platformer, it'd be maybe too linear, even if you really enjoyed it. Um, but it does have that replayability, and I really like your like American football analogy. As someone who is a huge soccer fan, um, you know that that it may always look the same, but every time you play it, it is drastically different, or it has a different outcome every time. So, do you feel like you've made the perfect deserted island game? It's it's definitely up there. I mean, like I could go back, especially I love the the last. The Last World, which sadly, like looking at the percentages on, on the Steam players and stuff, like how many people actually finish the game, the percentage goes way down. And I mean, most game developers are familiar with this. Like a you know, shockingly low number of people actually finish the game. Um, but the last couple of levels, I mean, I made them to be as hard as I could handle them. And they're fucking hard. And they're so challenging. But like when you do, like when you are muscling through and things do kind of start going your way and you're like just like, oh like you're right there and you're about to do it and you're like finally like you know a couple things all going right for you in a row and uh i mean they're fucking hard as shit everyone's like dude you're crazy these are so hard i'm like yeah but they're so good like you just if you die just do it again and like learn from every mistake and like learn like you know kind of when to push and when to pull like it's so organic and you know a big part of this goes to brute's ai i mean he did a really good job with, with making them fun and i mean they're a little bit more predictable than a human sure but like they still do random enough stuff and they fight hard and they always go for the sweet spot that hurts the most you're like oh you son of a bitch like i needed that archer so bad i was saving him i was keeping him safe and this guy just ran past the the line of the front line and like went right to the archer and just killed him in one shot you're like fuck <laughs> now i got to redo my whole strategy like i had this plan and now it's just gone to shit i need to redo it again and then you have a couple of good rounds in a row and you're like okay cool 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 i think i'm going to i'm going to fade here and then i'm going to i'm actually going to push like hell on my next turn over here where he doesn't see it coming i can see an opening like it's very sports driven i think in that sense which is a weird thing to say about a strategy game but um yes in my opinion it is it is the best strategy game that that i've played excellent well i mean <laughs> you are the master of this game there's nothing i can really even debate you on about this game um i'm just happy that someone a, a lot of people i've spoken to especially game developers especially indie developers uh, being maybe the solo creative force or part of a small team get very sick and tired of talking about their games uh, and it can become very grating to have to talk about the same things all the time but to hear uh, your passion and reflection on what makes that game great and it being so heavily inspired by games that you loved to make this kind of perfect game for yourself is super refreshing. Yeah, I'm, I just... I love it. I love it. I mean, it, it is it is engineered to be perfect for, for my tendencies. Like, I totally designed this game to be, like, what I would, you know, this is what I would want to show the world and say, hey, this is what I think a great strategy game is all about. Um, and it holds up, like I said. <laughs> well, excellent. You can take it with you. And um, maybe we'll return a bit later uh, to talk more about your games. <laughs> but for the time being, we have to move on to the next game, um, which I'm interested to talk about now post uh, Breath of the Wild. Me too. Uh, so let's listen to some music from this next game and let's dive straight into it.
So the next game on your list, Jake, is an open-world action RPG game that was developed by Bethesda. It released back in 2011. Uh, time flies, that's for sure. Um, yeah. Directed by Todd Howard. Released originally on the Xbox 360, the PlayStation 3, and PC. We have recently seen both Xbox One and PlayStation 4 ports of the game. And also, we will at some point receive a Nintendo Switch port, which seemed cool at the time um but now is probably not the open world game i would choose (laughs) um but the next game you have chosen is the elder scrolls 5 better known as skyrim why i love this game too man Um, okay okay okay. when they first when they first showed it i love i love fallout too like i'm a huge fallout fan um and i actually prefer some of the mechanics of the fallout games over skyrim but from that first trailer, when they first announced it, I was just like, oh boy, like, here we go. This is my thing. Like, I'm half Norwegian, so I have, like, this strong love of sort of Nordic culture and Nordic, uh, you know, lore, stuff like that. And uh, I just, I played the shit out of this game. And I didn't ever do, like, what you're supposed to do. I just fucked around. I just went to different places. I love traveling. Like, I travel as much as I can, and I, I love going to new cities, and I love going to new countries. And and games like this just, like, scratch that itch from the comfort of your own home. You know, you're just like, like, what's around this mountain? I have no idea. Like, maybe there's a town full of all kinds of weird characters. Maybe there's woods full of weird monsters. Like, there's all kinds of fun stuff to do. And I just love that sort of lost alone in the woods at night and you're like scared of the weird noises and you know there's you know your 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 tension is high and your your ears are open you're like paying attention you're scanning the landscape for you know for silhouettes of of fucking saber tooth tigers or weird ghosts or whatever random thing might pop up uh in front of you i mean in hindsight I do prefer Breath of the Wild for sure, um, which is which is cool because I, I was a huge fan of Skyrim. I still am a huge fan. Um, but the game allowed you to just walk around and see crazy shit and like come across weird situations and react accordingly and just sort of – I love just making my way through the woods and getting in fights with bears and like trying to figure out how to get away from them and – you know, finding these these amazing cities and talking to all these weird people and, you know, powering up your weapons and, like, going into these scary caves that are full of these weird whites and, you know, lighting your torches and, and just, like, sneaking around and trying not to be seen and finding new weapons and that thrill of, like, powering up your guy and getting better shields. You're like, fuck it, I got this sweet new sword now. Um, this game was kind of the one of the, the really defining games of that kind of gameplay for me. And I put in a lot of time and it very similar to breath of the wild. I didn't actually accomplish a whole lot. I spent a lot of time just exploring and playing and just like not playing by uh, a defined set of rules, you know, like you just can kind of go out and see stuff. And they had that, that kind of interesting um, quest generation system where like you would talk to someone, they would just kind of give you a nearby cave with something to go do and that was fine for me. I was like, that's that's great. Yeah, that sounds kind of intriguing. Maybe I'll head up that way and see if I can find it. And if I don't, I'll probably find something else interesting. And that'll lead me to something else interesting. And that'll lead me to something else interesting. And I'll find this cool new thing. And I'll fuck off with that. And uh, I just 
Yeah, I loved it. I loved the aesthetic. I loved the music. I loved the world. I loved the, you know, the crisp Nordic sort of, you know, the north and the snow and, the, you know, walking around like lost at night. The wind is howling and the snow is blowing and something big is like, you know, stalking you. Like, it was just fantastic. I just love the shit out of Skyrim. And I, I, I regret not finishing it but i never finish games like that i just kind of stopped playing them at some point <laughs> it's, it it's kind like of a, sounds like the reason the reason you play it is different to that anyway so it doesn't really matter i don't think it doesn't really matter i mean like i'm always like i should finish it and like you know figure out what the, the deal is with the story and then at some point you're like i don't even care like i just there's a whole world out there to go run around and explore and it's like a great painting you're like i i I didn't make a conscious decision to quit playing it. You're just like, I could play this forever, but if I play this forever, then I won't play any other games, so I should stop playing it, I guess, even though I could totally play it forever. So, again, if you're asking me to bring a game to an island where I've got a lot of time to sit down and play a game, this would be one of the games I'd bring. The new special edition with all the upraised graphics, by the way. <laughs> not the Switch port? Would you not bank on that one, or just definitely the PlayStation or the Xbox One port? I mean... The Switch thing is pretty cool. Like, you know, you can put a lot more time in it. Like, I'm a really busy dude. Like, I, you know, I have two kids. I'm director at a studio. I also run the company. You know, like, I own the company. So there's, like, all kinds of just other responsibilities on top of the of the fun game stuff. Um, and I don't get to play games nearly as much as I, as I did back in the day, um, which is definitely one of my regrets right now. But, um, you know, that's just sort of part of being an adult, I guess. Uh, with the switch, you know, I was able to play, I, I got the, the switch sent to my friend Jason's house that I was staying with in, in uh, San Francisco for GDC. And so I was able to play it the whole flight home to Japan. Um, I played it the whole fucking flight. Everybody around me was sleeping. I played Zelda the whole flight and it was amazing. I bought one of those giant ass 20,000 milliamp, uh, batteries and uh, I just played it the whole flight. And whenever I'm on a long train ride in Japan here, I play it. I, I can play it in bed. Like I can play it on the TV. Um, I'm getting a lot more time in on Zelda than I would if I had to just only be playing it at home. Yeah. And, Which you could do. Well, I guess in this scenario, it doesn't really matter because you'd be on the Disney yeah. Island. Yeah. Right. Um, so you'd want the best. Because I imagine even with the Skyrim port for the Switch, it's not going to be... No, I have I have a 1080, you know, for my VR addiction. So uh, Nvidia GTX. So I, you know, I want the Spire, the Skyrim Special Edition on Steam for sure. Uh, but I do think that that's the kind of game where you could play it again, and you could change your character, and you could kind of change your playstyle. You could get a lot of mileage out of a game like that. You could just keep playing it. I think, you know, you could play the different sides. You could play the different versions of the story. You, you yeah. could act as a different kind of character. Uh, there would be a lot of mileage and something like that if I had a lot of free time. Well, speaking of Bethesda then, and sticking with open worlds and the ones that they create, uh, why don't we move on to the next game, which is the second to last game on your list. Uh, so let's listen to some music from the next game, and let's dive straight into the penultimate game.
So the second to last game on Jake's list today is also a game developed by Bethesda and once again directed by Todd Howard. Um, it was a very short period of time from when it was announced to when it launched, uh, which is very unsurprising. Uh, I mean, very surprising in uh, the world of video games these days. We get games announced plenty of time beforehand and then they get delayed and so on and so forth. Um, but this game was announced very early on and then released only, I think, five months later, which is quite incredible. It released for the PC and the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One on November 10th, 2015. I can't believe it's already been almost two years since this game released. Uh, it's the action role-playing game that isn't fantasy-based. It's the post-apocalyptic world of Fallout 4. Jake... Why is the second to last game you're taking Fallout 4? Uh, I love Fallout 3 and I love Skyrim and you know Fallout 4 was sort of the uh, the logical sort of evolution of the series. So it brought together a lot of stuff. It was very tight. Uh, and it just is really representative of of you know one of my favorite types of game playing which is just to be thrown into a big living world and, you know, be expected to sort of make your way through it. And, and it's scary and it's dangerous and you don't understand things and you don't know what you should be doing. And so the best thing you could do is just sort of get your feet underneath you and get your grips around you and explore and test things out and scavenge. Um, I think um, the fallout series in particular really resonates with me because there's a sort of desperation that you're given that like Skyrim didn't uh, manage to, to maintain. I think Skyrim, like you would get to a point where you had enough food, you had a house full of treasure and there wasn't a lot of like desperation. Like you, you, you adventured and stuff for glory and for fun just cause where the fallout stuff is always much more somber. It's very, serious business like the first couple hours especially in, in both fallout 3 and fallout 4 are so desperate like you're just like desperate for food you're desperate for meds you're desperate for bullets um you're barely squeaking by like you don't have enough equipment to to get into fights you've got to be really sneaky sneaky and stealthy and and just try to avoid conflict as much as possible and that is so I guess what I'm saying about video games is I hate rules and I hate really scripted linear types of gameplay for the most part. Like Inside, I thought was one of the best games I'd ever played. Um, I played it once. It was fucking fantastic. I don't know if I'll play it again. Maybe I will. But it's kind of a, an odd choice. I mean, I think for the most part, I love stuff that's just like here's a giant simulated world with a bunch of danger and a bunch of adventure. And it's not necessarily like there's, there's tidbits of story and there's tidbits of stuff to kind of keep you motivated and keep you directed and keep you moving in a certain direction. But it's really up to you to kind of make your own decisions. And, you know, when people say role-playing games and they say like, you know, the classic Japanese RPGs and, you know, like you're a role-playing game, I'm like, yeah, kind of, I mean, it's more just kind of a story and you're kind of in this guy's boots and you're doing his thing. And, you know, you're kind of whisked along from point A to point B to point C, um, which can be very enjoyable. I mean, it's, it's closer to like reading a book or something to me, but, um, this kind of role-playing game is, you know, you're, you're really in that world and you're really feeling like you are this guy and you're desperate and you're doing things. And I find myself, particularly with, with the Heston games, particularly with the Fallout games for some reason, really like putting myself into that situation. I mean, there was a, I remember one time I was, I was running around and I found this, this, 
I'm going to cheat a little bit here, and I'm going to I'm going to combine some stories from Fallout Three and Fallout Four because they're kind of the same thing. Um, but it was early on in the game, and I didn't have enough stuff, and I was desperate, and I was avoiding the raiders, and I was avoiding everybody. And I, I kind of strayed too far from home and I wasn't able to get, you know, back in time and I was kind of out of bullets. And I found this old lady in this house and I went in and she's like, hey, you know, welcome. Like, you know, no worries. Um, she's like, actually, I, I got to I'm waiting for my kids to come back. Like, I can't leave the house because we're kind of pinned in here and my kids are out scavenging and I got to wait for them to come back. But you're welcome to kind of make yourself at home. And I was like, wow, that's cool. And uh she left the room and she just left me. She trusted me in her house and I'm sitting there and I'm a good guy. Like I role play like kind of as I would play. Like I don't, I don't get crazy yeah. and like become a bad guy or whatever. I'm like, what would I do in this situation? Yeah. Like th this yeah. is why I call it role playing. Cause I'm like, literally if I was here, like what would I do at this point? And I fucking look over on the side of the room and there's this big stack of bullets. And she, I think she had actually mentioned something about how she needed all the bullets to like fight off the Raiders that were trying to get her while her kids were gone or something like that. And I'm like, this lady needs these bullets as bad as I do. And I'm a fucking horrible person because I'm going to steal some of these bullets <laughs> because I'm not going to, I'm not going to make it home without bullets. Like I'm not going to make it back and I'm going to die. So I have to steal from this nice old lady who trusted me. And I feel like a complete piece of shit. And I'm like, this is role playing. Like I'm like literally like so guilty about this decision that I'm making and I stole some bullets and I was so embarrassed I couldn't go talk to her again. And I snuck out the back door and just left and I felt horrible. But I was able to find my way home and, you know, get back to the save point. And, and I remember thinking like, wow, that was, that was one of the most intense, like, you know, simulated sort of adventure moments that I'd ever had ever in any game. And I remember thinking like, okay, this is, this shit is for real. There was another one uh, completely unscripted. Um, where I was, you know, again, sort of desperate and kind of running around through the countryside. Like a lot of times as a fallout, I would just get up in the morning and be like, what am I going to do today? It's like, well, I'm going to go east. I haven't really been over that way. I'm going to fucking take my sniper rifle so I can scan the horizon and I'm going to be careful and I'm going to try to avoid trouble and I'm going to just go that way and I'm going to see what I can find and see what I come up, you know, just go scavenging for stuff. And I think they, they balance that so well. Anyways, I was heading through this canyon and I was like low on ammo and I didn't want to get in any fights. So I was being really careful about not approaching any animals or anything like that. And um, all of a sudden I got jumped by like, I think it was a pack of like these big scorpions or something. So I'm like, fuck, I'm wasting my bullets. Like they're right up on me and I got no choice but to, to waste my bullets and, and shoot these things as they're kind of pinning me up against this wall. And I hear something else going like – you know, I hear like another conflict like right next to me, but I'm too busy to, I'm too busy like using all my concentration to, to fight off these giant scorpions. And I kind of like, I end up getting bunched up with a couple of other guys uh, that were fighting off like a pack of wolves or something like that. And they were raiders and I hate raiders because they're slavers and I don't like slaving. So I fucking am like definitely a personal enemy of all the slavers. And I started making <laughs> a real personal vendetta to, to kill as many slavers as I could later in the game. But at this point I was super weak and I was super out of shit. And I basically like ran out of bullets. I had like a couple bullets left. And there was like three or four of them. They killed all their wolves right at the same moment I sort of killed the last scorpion. And I wheeled around and put my gun on them. And I'm like, fuck, I don't have enough bullets to kill all these guys. But I'm going to just like point my gun at them. And like, I don't know where the AI starts and stops in this game. I didn't work on it. I didn't make it. I don't know what's going on. I'm super projecting. I'm like way deeper into this than, than the game was actually, you know, demanding me to be. But I somehow I'm alive. I'm, I'm able to do this. I'm able to get in this, this far into these games. And I whip my gun at this guy and he fucking whips his gun at me. And he's like, look, man, 
you go your way, we'll go ours. And I'm like, what? And they fucking put their guns away and they walked off. And I was like, that was the fucking coolest <laughs> moment in any video game ever. And it was not a scripted story element. If that had been a scripted moment that someone had like, you know, completely set up like, a, like a, you know, like a uncharted game or something like that, where you kind of like had to go through that moment, it would be way less impact. And this moment was so dynamic and so live. It just fucking blew me away. I was like that. It's so cool. Like that immediately secured the Fallout series in my like, you know, favorite games of all time. Because I've just had so many cool moments like that where, you know, someone's fighting you and they're yelling at you and they're berating you. And you're just like, you son of a bitch, man. Like we're desperate. Like I'm always like watching like The, the Walking Dead and stuff like that. I'm like, why do humans end up always being their worst own enemies? Like, you know, they need to, to bunch up and they need to work together and they need to take on these challenges as a group. And humans are stupid and we can't do it and we end up killing each other. And in these games, I'm always like, you stupid son of a bitch. We should be working together. Like, why are you trying to kill me and take my stuff? <laughs> and I'm hiding on a roof and I'm like waiting for them to, you know, to lose sight of me. And I'm like trying to hide from them and I'm like running off and I'm like trying to, you know, like just, ah, oh, fuck. I, I love that kind of stuff. I love that just like really emergent, dynamic, player authored moments of sheer exhilaration and like really strong role playing. And, and that stuff has always just really attracted me. And, and I guess that's why. And the, the truth is, uh, as you can probably assume, the moment they announced Fallout 4 VR, I was deep into Fallout 4. I was like deep into it, you know, 50 hours or whatever. I'm playing it in all my spare time, really enjoying it. As soon as they're like, hey, we're going to make this game in VR, I stopped playing. I turned it off cold turkey. I'm like, I'm not touching this again in 2D. No fucking way. I'm going to play the shit out of this thing on HTC Vive. I am going to play the shit out of this thing on Vive because it's going to be terrifying. Like, I don't even know if I'll be man enough to do it because in VR, it's so much more like compelling. It's so much more alive. It's so much more terrifying. Like you're so you're in the game. You're not playing the game anymore. I mean, it's like Tron, like you are the game, you are the guy in the game and this is really happening. And for all, you know, you know, you're never going to get out again. Like it's so overwhelmingly believable and just like, you know, turned up to a thousand. I mean, it's like the difference between watching something in an IMAX thing and like watching a little, you know, trailer on an iPhone. Like it's just not the same experience at all. Yeah. And, and I think that Fallout 4 and all that freedom and all that, you know, like bringing in the, the inherent, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? You know, when you're playing with a gamepad, you're moving the cursor and, you're moving around and it's very, um, you know, you're sort of like using this input device to do this artificial action to kind of simulate uh, a realistic motion where you're moving this cursor on this 2D screen and you're trying to line it up over a guy's head to shoot him. And this makes sense. As gamers, we've all learned to just accept this and like this is your your sort of avatar's way of, of getting through this world. But in VR you got a gun in your hand and you have to aim it and you have to shoot it and you have to like you don't have a cursor. Like you've got to just shoot like it's a real gun and like it's so much more um, – there's less filters that your brain has to go through. Like you don't have to kind of like what button was it again? Like I have to push the B button to reload and like whatever. Like once you get into a VR thing, especially if the interface is intelligently designed and it's a simple interface, most of this is just muscle memory. You're just doing the stuff that you've been doing your whole life. You're using your eyes. You're judging scale. You're judging distance. You're able to just point at things and pull the trigger and not think about like what do I need to do to get my avatar to recreate this motion that I want to like do right now. Like you just do it. And so you start 
kind of like burrowing through all these layers of these weird filters that you don't even think about. Like as a gamer, you're completely accustomed to this stuff and you don't even, you don't even realize that you're making all these decisions and you're sort of making these, these compromises really, um, in, instead of, of doing what you would able to, to really be doing in real life. But once you get this stuff into really good room scale VR, all that sort of fades away and you're in that place. And this giant thing is really giant and it's really coming for you. And like it overrides your, your sort of, your your what the hell is it the higher brain it kind of taps right into your reptilian brain you turn around and you see this big you know demon dog thing rumbling at you down this hill and all your instincts are fucking screaming at you it's not a video game like you're they're screaming at you like that thing is gonna fucking kill you you need to deal with the situation now you need to figure out what to do and your body's like like your adrenaline is just spiking because it's not a video game like your brain is literally like it's called virtual reality like your your eyes your ears like these are some of your biggest input devices they're completely overrun by this other stimulant that's saying hey uh monkey boy like you know we're gonna bypass all the fucking <laughs> higher cognitive thinking right now and we're gonna go right to your your adrenaline levels of of saying you need to fucking deal with the situation right now because this thing is a threat to your life and so you need to fucking take drastic action and it's so fucking exciting and it's so fucking crazy and it's so beyond anything that any 2d game can ever bring you that it's not even the same league anymore like it just it changes everything and so that's why fallout 4 i haven't even played it in vr yet i mean fallout 4 just on its own and i could go on for hours about all its systems and how well it's designed and how fun it is to go adventuring and exploring and you know being completely outmanned and like just sneaking through the countryside and like totally feeling like this badass ninja like getting your stuff all together like I, the game itself was fantastic but the idea of that in vr fuck <laughs> dude <laughs> Uh, do you see, like, because I haven't experienced VR enough, it's not something I can really relate to on a game level. Like, as I said before, when we were talking about Google Earth, it's, I see the VR experiences working more for stuff like that and not so much for games. But it seems even like this, even Fallout, I imagine, which isn't one of their major focuses, like the, the VR version, and it's probably got some jank to it and is a little rough around the edges, um, still can give you that experience that really interests me, really does. And it is something I really want to try. You'll, you'll be surprised at how much your brain just accepts the fact that you're in this place and that, you know, I remember the first moment. I mean, I've I've wanted VR my whole life. I've been fucking waiting for this forever. Like the holodeck, like all this stuff has always fascinated me. Like the first when the lawnmower man came out, I saw it a bunch of times, and I was just like, "Wow, the future's gonna be awesome!" And it never hit. Right? It never came. It never made it. Only now, like two decades later, is it finally like a reality? It's finally settling in. When it first came out, we backed it at, at seventeen bit when we were still in Seattle. We backed it when we got our two, you know, the first. Uh, <laughs> what ck ones that they were they're called or no the dk ones dk ones yeah um and uh one of our guys colin williamson is an absolute nut he's one of my favorite people on the planet and he's one of the guys that does most of the ui and a lot of the polish on the 17 bit games it gives them a lot of their flavor um and he and i have a real similar sort of love of classic games and arcade stuff and like all this stuff and he's a total tinkerer and he's really smart and so we got our dk1 and he immediately like got to work like downloading you know whatever weird content we could get our hands on of which there was very little at that time 
And uh, it took a while and he had to kind of hack it and it didn't quite work just right. But he finally got Left 4 Dead 2 working uh, on it. And uh, this is before we even knew what motion sickness was. Like we didn't know any of this stuff. <laughs> and uh, and he put in Left 4 Dead 2, which I love and I played a lot of and it's a great game. And I started off, it was the one where you're like at the top of that tower. And um, I started off and I'm standing right next to the coach, the big black guy, the, you know, the big coach. And I'm looking at him at human scale for the first time. Like my eyes are at a certain distance apart from each other and they're looking at this guy and my brain is telling me that it's a human being standing right there breathing and looking around. And it's not a game character anymore. I'm like, I mean, I remember that moment really clearly. Like, holy shit. Like my brain is telling me that that's a man standing right next to me and he is looking for trouble. And I looked down the hall and you see this man-sized silhouette, this zombie running at me. And I, it was some of the most scared I've ever been in my whole life. I was just like, <laughs> it, it literally quits being a video game and it just starts tapping into these really primal um, sort of survival mechanics that we have developed over millennia. You know, humans are this weird hybrid creature where we're all fucked up and we walk on two legs and we're really just monkeys. Um, and we learned to walk in the grasslands and to look at the horizon and judge uh, far away you know, sort of just silhouettes, even like small, like really far away. You can see like these subtle things in people. You can tell if someone's wounded or you can tell if they're old. You can tell if they're aggressive just from a silhouette, like, you know, two hills over, like a long ways away. And so we have this really finite ability to assess all this data from like a really quick peek of, of another person. And you look up and you see this zombie running at you and you know that it wants to kill you. And like your brain just goes into this emergency override panic mode where the red lights start flashing inside and the fucking alarms are going off. And it's like, I know maybe you think that you're in a game or like this is some sort of thing. Like, fuck all that. You need to deal with this right now. And that guy's trying to kill you. And like literally your adrenaline just spikes and it's unlike anything. And that I was like, this is going to be the future. Like it was a mess for a long time. Like all these things we were playing. I remember I played doom three and the same thing happened. Like when that devil dog thing was trying to break down that door to get into me, I had to take it off. I was like, I can't fucking yeah, handle this. It, like, this funny, is not a game. It's funny because the two, uh, the two examples you have given are essentially the two examples that I have experienced in VR. And that's the extent of what I've experienced. And that was with the, with the DK one as well. And one was a half-life two VR version. Which I the, played the shit out of. And, and the bit where you open up and you're in the train yard and you look at the trains in half-life two and they're to scale. You are human and, and it, it, they, they're not objects in a video game. They feel like actual trains to scale you're looking up at them and you're exploring around them and they just feel like you're standing next to a train carriage and the second experience was like a sort of uh indie mod game which was all you were doing was walking towards a shed in a forest you couldn't do anything else other than walk towards this shed that had a light on and as you can imagine you walk closer and uh, the light starts to flicker and you move closer and closer and you can't go anywhere else and you're in this 360 world where you can't look away you have to keep going and then you get to the shed and then a, a ghost pops out and and you just you can't go anywhere and it's it's so horrifying your brain is freaking out because it feels so real like immediately just want to take it off and just just escape it is it can really take over um 
and th this was like three years ago so i'm interested s to see how far it's come since then because even back then it was still convincing yeah and th that was you know before before anything was was up to speed like it's starting there's still just not enough really compelling content right now I and mean, i know it's a race against time and and like like oculus is really working on it they're putting a lot of money and funding into securing really high quality you know stuff um <coughs> robo recall which has just came out is phenomenal it was amazing. It's so well done, and they just did such a good job of of this really kind of fun arcadey place. Uh, and there's like the, the, the same sort of sphincter tightening, um, you know, combat <laughs> and these things trying to kill you. But it's very fun and kind of light and cartoony and stuff. And like so, that's a lot more approachable. The really kind of scary stuff is just so fuck. So Colin lives in in Seattle, but he. Um, he had spent like 10 years at Square Enix uh, in Tokyo. And so I met him when he was, uh, he was actually at Dreamcast IGN when I was at Sega in Tokyo. And uh, we we met and we've been fast friends ever since. And so he's been, you know, one of my favorite employees for a long time now. Um, and he was out here just recently. He'll come out a couple times a year and just like stay at the studio for a couple, like a month or two and, and just work out of the Kyoto studio. I'm trying to convince him to come back full time, but it hasn't worked yet. <laughs> Anyways, we uh, he convinced me to to buy uh, Resident Evil Seven on on PlayStation VR. And okay. Yeah. Resident Evil, I'm like, uh, like I don't really like scary games. They kind of freak me out. I mean, like the 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 horror of of some of the moments in Fallout, like I can handle it, but like the really just grim, just like dark, fucked up hell stuff. Like I've just never been into those kind of movies or like that kind of gaming experience. I prefer like kind of a lighter, kind of more beautiful world. <coughs> Anyways. We're taking turns with this thing, right? Like, so we're we're both freaked out, and like we're not using the headphones, so we don't isolate ourselves. So like, one guy's watching on the TV, and the other guy's playing, and we're going back and forth. And the difference is stunning. Like, you could be sitting there watching him for a while, and you're kind of like, huh, whatever. Like, he's in this house, you know, whatever. And then he'll take it off, and like I'd put the thing on, and I'm just like, holy shit, I don't want to be here. This is so bad. There's bad people <laughs> here, and they want to kill me. And like, just being in that place and just looking around, you're like, fuck. I mean, a it looks amazing. Like, it looks so good. And I was so glad to see, like, the first kind of homegrown AAA, uh, you know, VR title with with this level of fidelity and this level yeah. of sort of thought and design and stuff put into it. Even though it's not a genre that I really enjoy normally, um, it's just so fucking compelling. Like, you're just like, my God. Like, <laughs> so I'm dying for – I'm dying for something more my aesthetic speed. Like, I mean, if I could get Breath in the Wild in VR, I probably would just never come out. I'd be like, well – it's been fun, guys. I'll see you later. You know, like, yeah, go ahead and ship me off to this island because I really don't need to ever go anywhere else. Like that, <clears throat> being able to hear the wind and like look around and, and see the clouds changing and like, you know, looking out on the on the horizon for for dangers and threats and and sort of like you know being in the woods at night and you know just like that it's like dangerous and you know it's dangerous and you know you need to be on your toes but it's also just like overwhelmingly oozing with gorgeousness and and ambience and beauty and oh fuck man that's that's what i want to do uh I, uh, you almost convinced me that I need to be spending some money. You do. Um, and the Oculus just got cheap, dude. It just dropped 200 bucks. You get the whole I pack for 500 bucks now. I don't now. have a setup that's powerful enough to run that. So my only option really is PlayStation VR. And I'm just not 100% sure. Like I've heard that the Arkham VR is very good. The, the Heist one is really good too. And obviously Resident Evil 7 as well. But I don't think I could put my brain and body through that experience. Also, um, uh, for the record, Res HD 
Oh yes, of course. In, in not HD, uh, Res Infinity. Uh, yeah, dude, is so good in VR. Like yeah. the, especially the new stage. Like obviously, I'm very familiar with Res. I love Res. It's not on my top ten list because it is a bit more linear, and I have played the shit out of that too, as you can imagine. Um, but when I got to play, um, Music Your Son is still a good friend of mine. And Mark from 8.4 obviously yeah. is n- now working with Music Your Son. Yeah, which and, it must be weird of, for you that, that sort of – It is. It's, it's very surreal. You keep saying like things all come around. I'm like this is surreal. Yeah. Like two of my favorite people are working together. Um, Mark has actually been a big part of, of 17-bit stuff sort of behind the scenes. Like he wrote a, you know, a big chunk of the dialogue and stuff for Skulls of the Shogun and uh, he helped out quite a bit with uh, some Galaxy stuff too. So he's always been like one of my kind of most trusted confidants and, um, you know, I spent a lot of time with him talking about this stuff. Because he's uh, also a big VR guy too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He, so- he, he's, seen, he's seen a lot of this stuff and, and he and I have very uh, – I mean we're almost the exact same age and we, we have very similar tastes in games. Not completely but very similar and uh, so it's always really – like when I play something really meaningful, I'm like, I, like I got to sit down with him in person. I got to go up and stay like a weekend at his house or something and just like talk about this stuff. And like, you know, we, we talk things through and we have very similar, you know, tastes and stuff like this. So we, we kind of bring a lot of stuff to each other's attention. Anyways, they, he and Music Group invited me to, uh, to play the, um, the Area X stuff, you know, before the game came out. And, yeah, and yeah. I, got, I got to sit down and play it in VR and put the headset on and, it's such a great um, intro to VR because it isn't. It doesn't demand you to, to learn a new, you know, uh, traversal system. It doesn't learn demand you to do anything sort of outside of of being very comfortable. Like you're sitting there and you're, you know, you're largely facing forward. You're playing with a gamepad. It's all familiar stuff, but it's so sensorily overwhelming and so gorgeous and like you're so in that world and the music is just coursing through you and, and it's such a <coughs> It's such a realization. I mean, I, you know, I've known Music Son now for fucking coming on twenty years, and and he's he's always been one of my favorite people, and I know him so well because I spent so much time, you know, the whole Res project we were together, and I've stayed in close contact with him, you know, for all the stuff he's done after that, and and I know what he wants to do, and I know what he's into, and I know kind of what he's what he's going for, and playing that Area X stuff, I was like, God damn it, like this is what you've wanted to do for so long. I literally started crying. I took it off and I was like, dude, like I, not only do I love this and it's blowing me away, but like I'm so happy for you to know that this is your dream and that you're achieving it. And it's so fucking amazing in VR. Like I just want to play it over and over and over again. Like it's just so perfect for that. Like you're just surrounded by all these sparkles and the music and like you're just up in this thing in a way that you could never achieve on a TV. Um I don't even know how I got from this tangent, but uh... <laughs> it was an excellent tangent, to be fair. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I'm always up. So I'm, buy, buy, buy a PSVR. Buy a PSVR. You can't okay, even find it okay. right now, but apparently they're they're ramping up yeah. the uh, they're ramping up production like crazy. I'm gonna have to do and... the lottery thing here in Japan, where and maybe get lucky one day uh, and be able I to think actually buy one. Yeah, they're gonna start. They're gonna start. You know, getting them to the point. <sighs> it's crazy. They've been out for I don't know how long now, and I've never seen one at store shops. They're always sold out everywhere nope. I go. Yeah, which is weird in Japan. I don't. I mean, there. Uh, I mean, people will laugh about it, but there could be the ulterior motives of the some Japanese gamers. But um, yeah, uh, it's. I'm always up to. I'm one of those people who's kind of always up to date with video games. I tend to try and play the latest releases. Um, 
Uh, but VR is something I think just because of how expensive it is, it's something I still have yet to experience. And uh, this conversation with you, not only like one game, but there are multiple games we've spoken about that really do interest me. And um, I'm definitely going to have to keep an eye out for it now, aren't I? I mean, all the stuff that's available on their on the PSVR store is, is great too. I mean, like there's a lot of free content. There's a lot of different stuff. There's a lot of cool stuff coming. Um, and I just, it's really weird to <coughs> sorry my allergies kicking in um it's really weird to to go back to 2d gaming again after you've sort of like been putting your toe into this weird new world where like you know it's it's pretty obvious to me that the future is going to be really heavily about the stuff the the psvr worlds the um the one you were talking about the heist uh that's yeah. really that one really made me think i'm like wow so this vr thing isn't going to be just about um you know, action gaming. I mean, there's a bunch of action gaming in that, but there's also some quieter sequences where it's just sort of storytelling. You're like just sitting at this pub in London with these gangsters and they're talking and like, you know, they're talking to each other and you're just kind of right there in it. And it's yeah. so compelling. I'm like, dude, I can't wait for movies where you're like at the table with De Niro and Pacino and they're like about to, you know, shoot each other and the tension's high and you're just drinking your coffee just like right there, you know, <laughs> just just like taking in the ambience. Like you're in that place and, you know, like the, the way that the movies are going to, evolve to kind of like mash up with with games and and how film of the future is going to be more dynamic in real time and, and in virtual reality like this stuff is just it's coming on hard and i'm so excited for all this stuff like i, I hate to just keep gushing but like to me this is like this is a new a new era is starting now and i've been waiting for it for so long and i can't believe it's actually here and it's just so exciting that this stuff is coming on and, and, and as a longtime game creator you know the rules have been sort of established for some time um about yeah, you know how how things work and how systems yeah. work and to be able to be on the forefront of the stuff and to be able to be like hey like let's define the standards for the next generation like th this is all up on the table right now and like it's so exciting to play this stuff and see the different approaches and how people are handling different problems and it's just such a I mean, when when was the last time that this happened? Like, like when 3D games first came out, you know, when the PlayStation first came out, and and people were like, "What? Like, how do I make these games that I know how to make, but in this new medium? Like, you have to kind of do this this weird period of wacky experimentation." I mean, think back to the PS1 and how many weird fucking games there were. Like, there were so many weird, yeah. original, like super weird new experiences, and it was a fantastic time for for being a gamer because you're just like, "What? This is new. Like, this is fresh. It's totally and it different." Was that Switch as well because you had like the play. PlayStation 1 3D games that used the D-pad because they didn't have the analog DualShock yet. And then the, when that was introduced as alongside the N64 that had like Super Mario 64 and you had these, you know, cameras that you could move by yourself. And it is that kind of, I think it's going through, it's, I mean, VR seems to have a bit more basis about what is possible and what isn't possible at the moment. But even so, there are so, there are lots of experiment. well, I, I as someone looking at it from a distance, there does seem to be a lot of experimentation with it right now. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really Steam has gotten a little overwhelming. I mean, they're letting in everybody that wants to do a VR game, so there's just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these kind of little tiny scrappy indie titles, and and they're all you know, there's something to learn from all of them. There's something to take away from all of them, whether it's for good or for bad. Like do it this way or don't do it this way. But um, I'm really looking forward to some of the Oculus stuff and some of the PlayStation stuff, where it's very uh, you know, bigger budgets and and bigger like experienced teams kind of starting to finally bring in real um, 
you know, really quality, kind of like really tuned, polished, really, you know, designed by professional software. Um, and just how, how different that can, can start to be. Um, I was playing dirt three or dirt rally. I forget the, the new dirt game, the very rally racing game, uh, in yeah. VR and, and just the fact that you're just in the car and you can look around and you can judge distances. Like you can tell exactly when you're going to be going around a corner or, you know, these things that you've sort of taken for granted, like a 2d game, like you're used to it. But like, once you see it in 3d and you're making these judgment calls based on, Again, coming back to this really much more human sort of scale of like making these sort of muscle memory decisions that you're you're doing every day of your whole life. So like it just comes so much more naturally. And you know, even something as simple as a racing game, I was like, son of a bitch, I have to go spend three hundred dollars on the best force feedback steering wheel <laughs> that money can buy right now. Because obviously this has to happen. Like this this isn't even an option. Like I have to do this. I also have to quit my job so I can spend all my fucking time playing these things. Um <laughs> <laughs> and that's where we're running into some some difficulties. So I'm trying to figure yeah. out how to how to get through that. But get get that balance sorted first. Well, we're shipping you off to a deserted island, so you're gonna have as much time as you want um, <laughs> to explore experience the Fallout VR and also Google Earth. So, but we can't give you any other VR games, unfortunately. Not yet. Uh, I mean, I which think I, I imagine is like for a while. <laughs> I'm sure they'll get you by. Um, but we have gone on a, on a bit of a tangent uh, from Fallout 4 about VR. But I know it's something you're incredibly passionate about. So I'm super interested to hear about it. But we are going to move on to your final game now. And it's another game I think you are very well versed in. And uh, can tell uh, pretty much anyone on the planet more about it than they could. And it's a great game i played it myself i really really enjoyed it when i played it and i'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about it so let's listen to some great music from this next game and let's go straight into jake's final game So the last game on Jake's list today is another game that was developed by a developer called 17-Bit. Uh, it was directed and designed by a man called Jake Kasdahl, and it released on PlayStation 4 uh, in August of 2015 and later on PC in October of the same year. It's the sort of roguelike spaceship shooter with the excellent name Galaxy. Jake, why is Galaxy the final game you're taking with you? Well, uh, similar to <laughs> another game that I did. I mean, this was also very much uh, a passion project, uh, chasing the ideals of of not only the studio, but sort of you know just 
the the love of video games that I have. I mean, I I grew up playing arcade games, you know, Defender and Asteroids and, and Zaxxon and like all these kind of old school games. Zaxxon less so because it was so fucking hard to play. But um, you know, Asteroids um, to me was one of the original sort of roguelikes. It was so dynamic and you know it wasn't scripted like it was a bunch of fucking rocks physically bumping around and you had these really realistic thrusters and um you know there was so much it was just all on you like you have to survive you have to float around and you could sort of learn the rules of the thrusts and you could sort of get good at it it's like sailing or riding a bike or skateboarding like you just sort of start to figure out the timing and and kind of be able to predict how things are going to move and it's not dry and static. It's very, it's very physical. So it's it's very like tangible and understandable. Again, from a very sort of human perspective. Um, years later, there was uh, Solar Jetman, which was a rare title on the NES. Um, I think there was a different name in the UK, but it was the same sort of thing. Like you had the ship. There was gravity in that game, which I didn't really like. But there was gravity. Uh, but you had the ship, and you had real thrust, and so it was just like all pacing and timing, and like you know, timing your curves, and like when you're gonna go around a corner, and um, you know, controlling your speed, and controlling your weight, and and still getting into combat, and like having kind of a slow moving bullets, and like leading your shots, and you know, the AI was was just archaic in that game, but you still just shooting targets and stuff was super fun. I I grew up playing tons and tons of these arcade games. Like I loved arcade games. I've always loved arcade games. Um, there's just such an immediate sort of uh, feedback, you know, like a 2D game. I, I have a thing against 3D games in a sense. I mean, it's funny that Breath of the Wild is my favorite game ever because I actually am not really fond of third-person um, platformers sort of things. Uh, yeah. I don't like I don't like the lack of depth perception, and I don't like. Um, the responsibility of needing to fucking move the camera around all the time when I want to be focused on on shooting and jumping and doing those things, and you've only got the one thumb. So it's always been sort of a a bummer for me. Breath of the Wild does a really good job of it, and you know, playing third person platformers in VR just for a mini micro tangent here uh, basically immediately solves both those problems because you have the depth perception, so you can make these kind of key uh, Z buffer or z depth uh you know decisions because you you actually can tell if your sword's going to connect with a guy where on the 2d screen you're like you're you're basically giving it your best shot you don't really know um and then your camera becomes your head your head is really good at looking around to judge your environment and you don't have to think about it and your hands are still free to do your your motions so that's just kind of a (coughs) a side tangent regardless (laughs) i've always preferred 2d games for pure gameplay to 3D games because you're losing a lot of that ambiguity. You've got, you know, you're playing Mario Brothers, you're jumping over a gap, you're judging your speed. About halfway through that jump, before halfway through the jump, you know exactly where that arc is going and you're able to judge, am I going to make this jump or not? Where if you're playing on a 3D platform where you kind of just jump and hope and it's a very different experience. Like there's a lot of gains in the 3D world that it's much more, you know, engaging and it's much more... Um, it's much of a living, breathing world that you can sort of be a part of uh, that you don't get out of 2D games. But in terms of pure action gameplay, it's really hard to beat a straight-up 2D game. Which is really interesting considering your whole list, apart from your own game in this one, I guess, Schools of the Shogun Counts 2, uh, are all 3D games. Yeah, but 
(laughs) (laughs) It is. It is. It's interesting. Um, But I mean, that's because up until now, the 17-bit thing has been to take classic genres of these amazing action games and stuff of yesteryear that need updating with modern tech, modern physics and modern AI and, and a lot of the really fun stuff out of these worlds that I like, you know, out of the fallouts, out of the halos, um, and apply that to yesteryear's kind of rock solid, airtight, perfect control schemes. There aren't a lot of games like that, which is probably why <laughs> there's not a lot of those on my list. Um, that's kind of been our <laughs> thing though. Um, <clears throat> And so bringing that 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 rock solid, just like immediate response, like no ambiguity control scheme to a shooting game um, was always kind of a goal of mine. I mean, I've I talked at length about my my love, my absolute love of of the Halo games and like that kind of really emergent combat with the physics based stuff and 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 utilizing the environment stuff. All I ever wanted Galaxy to be was the classic spaceship shooters of the arcades of yesteryear mashed together with uh, the AI and the physics of Halo. I mean, that's really that's that's the whole high level concept of the entire game. It's always that. There's never been anything but that. Um, <clears throat> we got it going real early. I, I hired some really talented interns, Aaron Biddlecom and uh, Brett Cutler. Uh, from DigiPen, uh, boy, years ago, like when Skulls was kind of still wrapping up. Yeah. And I brought them in and a bunch of other interns for the summer, and I told them my pitch, like my idea, and, and they were like, cool, and you know, they were super into it, and so we started banging together this prototype, and pretty quickly I was like, this is this is already great. Like the AI was, was super simple. Um, it was much more like a standard sort of older game, but the feeling of floating through space and being able to apply counter thrusters and thrusters and boosts and just that absolute sense of play of just like, you know, having this responsibility. It's like a remote control car or something. There's just like this weird absolute joy in, in piloting this little um, that is craft. Definitely, that is definitely how it sort of feels. That sort of remote control car where if you turn it around, you have to flip your brain around to control it again and change the controls in your head. You're like almost constantly changing the controls from not inverse, but the standard to then the opposite. Like you're thrusting the other way or you're right. But that's, that's the thing that I was really adamant about was like, not there's a disconnect when like you're driving your remote control car away from you. You turn left, he turns left, you turn right, he turns right. But when he's coming back at you, you're like, wait, uh, like, yeah, (laughs) You want to like if it's a game, you want to just like hit left, and he's going to turn to your left. But it doesn't in in the real world. He'll turn right, and you're like fuck. So there's this disconnect. So it was really important to me that Galaxy yeah. had these one to one controls. You just point the direction you want to go, you hit the gas. It doesn't yeah. matter which direction you're heading. If you want to go the other direction, you just hold the direction you want to go, and you hit the gas. And so we really simplified the controls. And a lot of people would play it, and they're like, how come this isn't like Asteroids, where you like rotate left and right, and you know, you you play kind of that more traditional standard. I was like, because you won't be able to get into this really fucking intense high level combat and make these like split second sort of you know fighter pilot like decisions because you're going to be like slowly turning the ship around or whatever. So sort of subtracting all that from the equation and just making sure that the controls were like as responsive as as humanly possible. And then we got into the AI of like. I, I kept likening it to like a Pixar version of a video game. Like, you know, like you look at, you imagine a Pixar game, 
or a Pixar movie of some kid like in an arcade playing this thing. I mean, I guess it's not unlike uh, what the hell was it called? Crush it, Crusher Joe? No, uh, Smash Wreck-It it Ralph. Wreck-It, Wreck-It Ralph? Ralph. That's the one. <laughs> like you, you dive past the pixels into the actual like behind the scenes sort of thing, and these guys are actually thinking and they're actually making decisions and they're actually, you know really cutting edge AI, like the best game AI you could find and putting that into this kind of old game where these pilots are on patrol and they're in communication with each other and they have self-preservation instincts and they've got shields, they understand how they work. They've even got, you know, commanding officers that they will sacrifice themselves to take a hit for if the commanding officer's shields are down and stuff. Like there's so much stuff in that game that people didn't really realize that it's crazy. Like we put so much fucking work into <laughs> into these behaviors of these things. We were working with a company that's that's sadly no longer around, but they were called Sentient. And we had this um actually Ed Freeze, one of the original Xbox guys, introduced us to Sentient. And they were an AI studio looking to make middleware for for games. And we were a small game studio without an AI engineer and not much budget. So we couldn't really afford to to go hire some hot shit AI guy, but I really wanted that to be a part of the experience. So it was a match made in heaven. They needed a title to work on and we needed a, a badass AI engineer. So we started working together and like cranking out how this would work. So we already had the physics and everything working. And we brought this guy in and Michael would, would come in like once or twice a week and just sit with me and we would just kind of design the AI behaviors together and and plug this stuff into the game. And it that was like my dream game, like that that experience alone, like right there, like that kind of that classic like late 80s, early 90s sort of arcade blaster, but with modern physics in it and really intelligent enemies that are hard and they want to kill you. And they've got shields. I mean, this is this is the Halo, right? This is 2D Halo. I mean, that was always the high concept. Yeah. Um, on top of that, we we were making this one level, what you call an X level. It's kind of like your prototype level. And, you know, we we just had the one level. I had hand-built the whole thing in Maya and, and I'd kind of placed every element everywhere. And... Um, we were playing the shit out of it and we had tuned it and tuned it and tuned it. We had like these enemies kind of ramp up to these kind of enemies and moved up to this sort of thing. And like, you know, it was really like, it was like a perfect sort of prototype level of this game. Like the combat was interesting. It was engaging. It was different all the time. And at one point I was like, Man, like every time I go to edit this thing, I got to load up this whole level file. I got to go through, I got to move every single rock. I got to make sure there's no gaps anywhere. I need to like, edit and tweak the shit out of this thing just to make it bulletproof. And we were a really small team. And I was like, I was like kind of the main, you know, level designer. I'm like, how am I going to possibly focus on all the gameplay stuff that I need to focus on? I'm also, you know, sort of the lead artist on it. And like, how am I going to fucking build all these levels? Like, how am I possibly ever going to do that? And uh, I was playing a ton of indie sort of roguelikes at the time. And I was finding that like, even with this, with the limited asset set, really intelligently designed uh procedurally generated stuff was sort of endlessly interesting and this is you know Derek Spelunk or Derek used Spelunky I was playing a lot of that too and I was realizing like this is really engaging like this is really fun and it's different every single time you play and realizing you know being a long-time game developer realizing that if you do something that is really linear it does get really old when you're spending a lot of time with it and I was like I don't want to to be like skulls worked because it was so different after a couple you know rounds the the battle had become so you know individual like every time it would always mature into something very different than the last time you played so it worked out really well 
And with Galaxy, the combat was so good, and you would run away, and like you'd run into another squad as you're trying to run away from this other squad, and they would start fighting, and like that would get you drawn to this other fight. So it was already very organic feeling and very non-scripted uh, feeling. But I remember one point um, having uh, our lead engineer, Zach Aikman, I was talking to him about like how to streamline the process, like how to sort of like make something that was more like to build a building block set, like a Lego set that would be a lot easier to sort of assemble stages out of as opposed to kind of like doing this custom hand-built approach that I was doing. Yeah, yeah. And um, so we kind of – he had this thing. I forget what they're called. These kind of algorithm where he was like generating these rooms. We would generate these rooms and I would have all these rooms. It would basically turn into a giant Lego set. And, and the game was coming along and it was a lot of fun and everybody was really enjoying it. And I was playing a bunch of Rogue Legacy at the time. I remember I really loved that game too. Such and a great game, yeah. Yeah, I, I played the shit out of that game. I couldn't stop. <laughs> and they had this Such weird thing game. where like there was really no clean breaking point when you play it. You're like you die and then like you're thrown right back into buying stuff and you're like, wait, like where should I pause to like take a break? So I would just play until four in the morning every night. Fuck that game. Um, but I was like, I have an idea. And I, I thought the whole team was going to be super against it. I thought they were going to yell at me, like, are you crazy? Like, you know, fuck, we don't have time to, to change gears. And, like, this is the we game. We've already built most of the game. Come on, yeah. Jake. <laughs> but no, it wasn't most of the game because we, we we literally only had the one stage. Like, we had a lot of the oh, mechanics okay, okay. stuff working. Yeah, yeah. But I was like, what if we procedurally assembled these rooms so that you would get, a like, a roguelike game every time? And I expected all this pushback and everyone was like, dude. <laughs> and so it became a roguelike. And the beautiful thing about that, A, for the development team, is you get to play a different game every time. Like it's never the same. And so it's not about memorizing the stage and memorizing where the bad guys are and like memorizing all the stuff that could become really stale and get really old it's always a fresh challenge, even for the people who literally design fucking every aspect of the game. Every time you go on a mission, A, the stakes are high because if you die, it's over. And B, you don't know what's coming and you don't know what you're going to get into. And you might be, you know, kind of outgunned in a fight and your shields are down and you're running for, for sanctuary and you might stumble right into another squad and then the shit just goes crazy. And then you've got to really fucking scramble and you've really got to like – come up with a way better plan in very little time and, you know, figure out, are you going to run right back into the fray and hope that they are like taking each other out? Or are you going to run and hide more? Are you going to, you know, take the chance of potentially lighting up more squads of guys to come looking for you? Are you going to run and try to hide? Like, I mean, their, their AI is pretty good about judging your velocity and like your last known uh, heading and sending off search squads to go actually look for you. I mean, this stuff is actually really like modern, AI, like it's very you know sort of Metal Geary, um, you know Halo stuff. It definitely but did remind me of that a little bit, like the sort of spotlight vision that they had. That sort of it did did hark back in a way to me the sort of the guards in Metal Gear. That that's that was definitely the feeling I got from it. Yeah, I mean that was that was very much you know by design. I was like, what would happen? Like how how do we simulate? Like this again, this Pixar experience of this classic arcade game. Like, what would it look like under the sheets when it's like you're actually seeing the pilots and you're hearing their communications? And, yeah. And you're like, wow, like this is actually a physical driven world with this living ecosystem. And, you know, it, there's a lot going on down there. And, like, you know, you can imagine like pulling out and like showing some kid playing and it's all pixelated and stuff. And you're just seeing this really rough abstract version of it, just like Wreck It Ralph. That's why that game was, or that movie was so uh, appealing to me. I was like, wow, this is like, 
it just had a lot of resonance for me at the time, obviously. Um, <laughs> but again, it just, I mean, to, to, to boil it down to why it's one of my favorite games, uh, it is based on all my aesthetic choices, which obviously I find very aesthetically pleasing. Um, the music is fantastic, uh, by our good friend scientific, who's an amazing artist in his own right. But the fact is, it's, this is hardcore skill-based action game where it's all about your muscle memory and getting your sort of play chops up to speed while never being able to memorize any of these stages or anything like that. And there's a lot riding on it. Like you can't just be a, a, an asshole. Like you have to play conservatively and be careful. Like you have to fly in. I, I, I'm half Norwegian. Like I said, I'm half Viking. I tend to go a little crazy in action games. Like I tend to die a lot because I'm like, fuck it. I'm taking these motherfuckers out. Like I'm going to jump in there and I'm going to fray and I'm going to go crazy. And I just tend to die a lot because I go in over my head. But I can't because it's a video game and it's awesome. And that's why I love video games because you can act like an asshole and you cannot pay a big penalty besides having to do it again. And so Galaxy is meant to be like the best of the old really kind of, you know, muscle memory sort of like shooters but with all the layered additional, you know, endless regeneration, endless new challenge, endless new um, experience every time you go out. It's really more about cho your, your chops and your skills and your ability to sort of, uh, you know, create a new plan on the fly and, and sort of uh, – I was talking to Zach Gage about this. Zach is an old friend of mine and we were talking about uh, pilots, like fighter pilots and how – I forget the name of this – this way that they judge the way that fighter pilots work, but you have to make like the best fighter pilots basically are able to reassess the situation like multiple times per second where people with a lower, I forget the, the name of the, the number, but the people with a lower number don't make good split second sort of athletes and, and particularly fighter pilots. Fighter pilots have to make like these really, really fucking like tons and tons of micro decisions like multiple times a second. And so that's what this game comes down to. It comes down to being a badass pilot in this badass sort of, you know, Macrossy sort of anime fantasy world that I love because I grew up watching all that stuff too uh, with the yeah. great aesthetics and great explosions and these great bad guys. But it really comes down to this really engaging one-on-one -on -one intelligent combat and, and using the environment to your advantage and using the physics and being able to do this very physical, simple input. I mean, really, like you've got thrust and you've got shoot and you've got you know, you've got some strafes and some modifiers and stuff, but a lot of it is just timing and direction and heading and leading your shots and and knowing when to sort of not over-engage. Like, wow, there's a bunch of dudes in there and I'm probably going to just get murdered if I fly in there. So how do I separate these guys? How do I divide and conquer? How do I like, you know, even the odds even a little bit and, and just like how – when do I use my missiles? Like how much time do I spend, uh, you know, going off and looking for stuff? Because again, even as the designer – of all these rooms, like, I don't know if this next cave over is going to have some badass weapon power up or not. And so it's infinitely playable, even for the people who are the most infinitely familiar with it. Like, it's never going to be something that you are familiar with. It's always going to be throwing you a new challenge. And in my opinion, it's a perfect challenge. Like, I still love to play Galaxy because it's so dynamic. Like, every time I play it, I'm just like, wow, this is like the combat is super interesting. I mean, again... I literally fucking designed this stuff. Like I <laughs> made this to be my own personal, you know, 
perfect idea of what an arcade game could be all about. Yeah, yeah. And so I'm not surprised that I love this game, and I'm not surprised that I sit down. <laughs> with so I really like how this feels. I really like how it controls. I really like those explosions. I really like like all this stuff. It's like you know, I had this fucking fantastic team, and everyone was super into it, and everyone was super passionate and feeling it, and and we it was just a you know a labor of love. It wasn't about market research or anything. I mean, if we'd done more market research, we probably would have realized it was really fucking hard and we probably could have sold more units if we made it a little bit easier, but it just wasn't about that. And so even now when I play it on hard, like it's, it's really challenging, especially if you play on, on the original mode, like we, we added arcade mode in later, uh, where you could do a checkpoint between every stage, which makes it considerably easier. But when you're three missions in on the, on the fourth world and it's like super hard and like, it's just like this, again, it's that desperation that's the, you know, it comes back to my love of the fallout stuff of like, fuck, like I am really outnumbered. I'm really outgunned. Like, what can I possibly do to get through this world? Like sometimes you have to just fight through it and you have to just be good and you have to just get lucky and you have to have those split second decisions. And when you're just like dodging between shots and like missing every single shot and like unloading, unleashing your missiles right when you get his shields down, like the minute, you know, his shields are going to go down with that last shots fired it hasn't even hit him yet and you're like already queuing up your missiles like that that like tactile just like uh that fucking combat that heart of the <laughs> combat is so good and I, I fucking love that game like i'll admit it i i love galaxy it's my favorite like combat game of of all time even more than halo that's it's like you planned you knew one day you were going to end up going to a deserted island so you spend all this time <laughs> like making these replayable the games that are perfect for you <clears throat> um not just in replayability but just everything else and it is i love hearing how passionate you are about your own creation so many people sort of maybe have that uh modesty or maybe uh i don't know afraid to show how passionate they are about things they create and it's so amazing to hear the passion and the, and I imagine it is a, it's such a great feeling to have created something that is like not about market research or not about selling tons and tons of units. That's not the reason you do it. Obviously, you need to make a living, but being able to make a living and make a game you really fucking like based around your own tastes and what you enjoy out of games must be one fucking great feeling. It is. I mean, running a company is a lot of work. It's a lot of stress and there's a lot of realities of, you know, budgets and stuff, like I said, and like, you know, just kind of dealing with all this big boy stuff. But at the end of the day, being able to say, hey, you know, I've been playing games for a long time and this is what I think is, you know, an excellent game. Like this is this is my idea of like, uh, you know, as, I don't want to say perfect, but as like near perfect as we could make it. Yeah, yeah. And, for, for that genre and f for like that type of game. Yeah, and it just, you know, it, I don't know. It, it was really, really, really rewarding. And and when I talk to people, you know, I'll be introduced to somebody at a party or whatever, and they're like, oh, this is the director and the creator of Galaxy. And, and like sometimes you'll just get this weird look, and they'll get this weird look in their eyes. They're like, oh, I fucking love that game. Are you kidding me? And they'll start going into the real micro nuances of combat and stuff like that, where I know they're not blowing smoke up my ass. I'm like, wow, this guy actually really played the shit out of the game. He really knows what he's talking about. And he's obviously, he gets all, <laughs> he gets all hopped up and passionate too, because like, because he's into that same kind of thing. So when I meet really like-minded people that that played through it and they're just like, dude, this fucking game is so tight. I'm like, thank you, thank you, thank you. I know, like, I, I love it too. And I'm really, I'm just, <laughs> nothing brings me more happy than when someone else is just like loving it. They and saying, get it. They, they understand yeah. exactly the reasons as to why you love it and what you want other players to love out of it as well. Yeah. Um, excellent. Well, 
I think we've come to the end now, Jake, and we have to send you on your way to the uh, lovely, uh, ho- what is it, like the Hawaiian-themed town Is it, is it Lan- Lanaru? La- uh, Lanaru, I think. Lanaru or something Lan-Ru, like that, yeah. Yeah, um, but it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Um, and so unexpected, the, the, the games you talked about and the, the reasons as to why some of uh, the choices you made has been such an enjoyable experience. So thank you, thank you so much for joining me for the 50th episode and uh, talking about these games. Thank you. It's been absolutely my pleasure. And I, you know, I'm a perfect candidate for this stuff because I just love talking about video games. And, and if that's... you're going to go to me and ask me what I love and like <laughs> why I love it, I'm going to talk your ear off. I mean, I'm looking at this. We're about three hours in now. So yeah. it feels like it went by in a minute. So, yeah, it yeah. does. Thank you so much. But there is one last question I have to ask you. And it sure. is the last question I ask everyone who appears on the show before they are about to depart for their destiny uh, awaiting island with these wonderful games that they've chosen. Um, and that is we've spoken a lot about games. Um, but a big part of gaming is the consoles we play games on. And specifically, like, the back catalogs of games and the nostalgia we have for some things, or maybe just good experiences on consoles. Now, if you could take one console with you, bearing in mind the back catalog and maybe all the peripherals that come with it and all that sort of stuff, if you could only take one console with you alongside these eight games, uh, what, what console would you take? Dude, that's tough. I um, thought that might be tough for you. <laughs> like it has to be a console, not a PC, with my entire Steam collection. Can't can't take a PC because you can emulate anything on a PC, and that would definitely be cheating. Right. Um, I mean, even today, people can now play Breath of the Wild on PC. So definitely not. Definitely yeah. not PC. Yeah, that's that's true. That's cheating. So my favorite console of all time is the Super Famicom. I think it's just, even now, the industrial design, the colors, the shape, the logos, uh, the fonts, uh, everything about it is is the sexiest piece of industrial design that I've ever seen. I Wait, the American it. version or the, the Famicom? Fuck not the American version. Oh, that thank disaster. Fuck. Thank fuck. Thank you, Jesus, thank are you, you kidding you. me? Yeah, I was Fucking making... purple box? Yeah, no, fuck that. The I Super was... Famicom. Oh, I mean, you guys in the UK got the beautiful version yeah, with did. the, with the American logo. I, was, I saw that and I was like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> like, oh, it's like the most beautiful piece of hardware ever designed and they fucking <laughs> threw it all away I just so I, I honestly I, for I a never, second thought you were talking about the purple one just Jesus because dude. of America yeah. yeah I'm so glad we cleared that up <laughs> oh god okay just another little tiny micro tangent I was at Nintendo at the time when the Super Nintendo was announced I remember the first time I ever saw the Super Famicom it was in EGM it had all orange buttons it was like the first little grainy picture um and I, I was just like in, entranced already. Like it was still, it was like pre, pre-release. Obviously it was all the orange uh, icons instead of the colored buttons. Yeah, yeah. And one day a guy walked through the call center with a clay mock-up of the uh, Super Nintendo. He's like, this is the American Super Nintendo. And everyone like fucking got up and landed over there and, and was looking at it. And I was like, what the fuck is that? Like, what <laughs> the fuck is that? And then you saw that like the pink and like the lavender, the purple buttons. I was just like... I mean, to be fair, I have a lot of good memories of using that machine and the, and the feeling of those buttons and the sounds of the buttons sliding around and stuff like that. Like, it's still a good machine. It's just nowhere near the the absolute gorgeousness of the Super Famicom. That being said, a lot of those games are great and I love them, um, but they have all aged and they all do have very simple, uh, you know, by today's standards, they're all pretty simple games. And as much as I love that stuff... I don't think I could commit to that machine if I had to bring one with me. I think 
I mean, obviously the modern stuff is is quite good. I have to admit, um, the PlayStation Four is pretty hot shit right now. Um, there's a great catalog of really engaging games. I love the controller. I love the interface. There's a lot of really great modern stuff that I haven't had a chance to to spend the time that I would like to. Um, you know, there's so much stuff that you could dive into on that. I would probably have to go for the PS4 at this point. Totally makes sense. Um, and the PS4 just seems to keep getting better. Um, so I am not surprised. I think, yeah, it's been chosen before on the show. Um, and I just think it's going to keep getting get, uh, keep getting better. So uh, It's got a to- big library. A lot of them yeah, are favorite. already. Already has yeah. a big library. Um, um, I have Horizon Dawn. I'm dying to jump into, but I'm not going to touch it until I, you know, have like put down Zelda for a while, uh, which isn't happened to do, you know, the, anytime the, soon. The, the open world ruiner. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't think I'll be playing Horizon Zero Dawn for a while, just because I think my opinions might be tainted in some yeah, way. It's best. Um, to, it's best to keep them discreet. Uh, just uh, thinking about it, I got to say, my runner-up would be. My second favorite hardware of all time after the Super Famicom is the Sega um, – Jesus Christ, I can't believe I'm spacing this right now. It's getting late. Uh, the No, the, 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 the Japanese arcade machine that's everywhere, the, the green one, the uh, Astro City. Astro City. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. The, the cabinet. The, with the, with, yeah, the cabinet with the, the bright green cabinet with the kind of the white space age look and then the bright pink buttons and joystick and the bright green buttons and joystick on the other side. Um, which in Japan housed all the CPS2 classics, all the CPS1 classics, uh, you know, all that stuff. Like, I mean, pretty much any fighting game worth its salt has gone through the CPS or the Astro Cities, you know, any of the classic arcade games of yesteryear, any of the old classic Capcom stuff, any of the old classic Sega stuff, all that shit was available on the CPS2. And I would say that would probably be my runner-up because it would just have the most amazing. It's like that is your main catalog basically, but with everything on it. Uh, which even though like they have aged as well, there's still some classics out there that feel real good. And that would be. I mean, it's kind of my dream to have one of those in my house at some point. I don't know how the fuck I'm going to get one upstairs <laughs> here, but you can buy them for a dime here now in Japan because there's like they're just like facing them out, right? There's just not yeah. that many of them left. They don't have so that much actually, memory either, so they get no. the new cabinets that they can just shove like all of the Japanese like Blaz Blue and Guilty Gear and stuff on. Exactly, have hundreds yeah. of games on them. Uh, so, so that's that's kind of my dream. Pretty sure I want to get one of those before they're all gone, uh, just to hold on to. Um, so that would be my runner-up. But yeah, I think at this point the PS4 has got so much good content. It's got the fantastic controller and. More games that I've, you know, that I just don't have time for. So if I'm like, hey, if I'm going to an island and I can bring all these games and actually sit down and like play through Final Fantasy 15 and, and play through, you know, Dark Souls and like take my time with it, uh, that'd be great. Excellent. Well, you can take it with you alongside the wonderful eight games that you've chosen, including two of your own, which has been so amazing to hear about. Jake, thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you so much for joining uh, and Please tell the wonderful listeners uh, who have listened so far throughout this whole three-hour extravaganza um, (laughs) where they can find you on the internet and also what they should be checking out. Uh, So um, I personally am at jkoza, J-K-O-O-Z-A on Twitter. Um, I'm also on Instagram. I post a lot of photos of the random game centers and a lot of the beautiful stuff that I see every day here living in, in unbelievable Kyoto, Japan. Um, I do go to Osaka a lot and find the dingiest alleys I could find in the craziest old retro game arcades and used game stores. So I, I post a lot of stuff on there. Uh, 
the studio is at 17 underscore bit um, where we post all of our kind of company related stuff there and a lot of game stuff, things that we like there. Uh, we do have a website at 17 bit 17 dash bit.com um, where we're going to be trying to spend more time and effort kind of sharing the fun stuff that we're coming across there. Um, and I say everybody needs to go check out VR. Like if you haven't played it yet or you're not a believer yet, <laughs> find a friend who's got the PSVR or someone who's got an Oculus or a Rift and, uh, you know, find a handful of the best games. I'm actually going to start curating a list of, of the stuff that I think people need to play and why. I'm not sure where I'm going to host it yet. Maybe we'll put it up on the 17bit.com page. Um, but uh, this is a, a sea change uh, coming upon us now. And these are exciting times. And we're going to start seeing experiences that are just so far beyond anything you can do on a TV with uh, with a, your little analog sort of abstract controller. So uh, I feel like my eyes have been opened quite literally. And uh, the, the future is here. Definitely going to be looking out for it from now on and maybe try and get my hands on a PSVR at some point during this year. Um, but thank you so much for listening to this episode, the 50th episode of the show. And if you've listened to every single episode, thank you an extra little bit more for doing that. And thank you for all of your support uh, this year. I really appreciate it. As always, you can find the show on SoundCloud. You can find it on iTunes. You can rate and review it there. You can also find the show on Twitter at Final Game Show. You can also find me personally on Twitter at LiamBME, where I, very similar to Jake, post photos about Japan, uh, old arcades, uh, uh, old game shops and just all random stuff like that at the moment you'll find a lot of tweets and screenshots from breath of the wild so if that's what you're into come join me and come talk about this wonderful episode with me and as always i hope to see you again next week thank you so much to jake thank you so much to you and goodbye <laughs>